Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our Buy It Now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder, then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related.
everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. And it is around this time of year that we do our little breeding episode. Uh, so we figured we'd do Carpet Python Breeding 101. And who better to bring it to you than Mr. Owen McIntyre, the Carpet Python Breeding Master. Who the hell told you that? I mean, <laughs> I, I pretty much throw jello at the wall and see what sticks. I see mean, what sticks. Yeah, it's a miracle I produce shit every year. And, and uh, you and I will have that conversation come springtime where I'm like, I don't think anything's going to breed. I don't think anything's going to go. And then, like, I have, yeah. like, four clutches. So it's like every year is nervousness and, like, holy crap. I mean, even people like Nick who's like, I don't know if I'm going to get. And then he has, like, 80 clutches. So, you know, there's – I am definitely not the breeding master. I'm not he who you seek. So, but I have bred them before numerous times, so. Yeah. Carpet pythons are not the, uh, they're not the most difficult python to breed, for sure. Um, and um, basically, we'll do a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode that um, what we're going to be discussing is basically my approach and Owen's approach to breeding um, carpet pythons. Uh, I think, really, the basic is just, um, hopefully what you can gain from this episode is a feeling mm-hmm. to know what's going on, what to look for, what are some signs, what that you're at least going in the right direction. Um, but when you really think about it, these animals are programmed to reproduce. I mean, you just yeah. kind of have to figure out how to get them in that mode, and it's pretty much just let them do I mean, it's kind of like throwing jello at the wall and seeing what sticks. Exactly, um, so... But the thing is that the whole point of this show, this episode, is to give you guys a good jumping off point because that's what we had when we started is I had that article that Will Leary wrote for Reptiles Magazine. Swear to God, that's where I got most of my beginnings. And then I found out what worked for me and the fact that Will Leary is in North Carolina and that's where he wrote his – that's where he had his his, um, timetables. And also I believe I also read uh, Anthony Caponetto's website. There are two different regions guys do different things and they but they both did similar things and then they also did different things so that's what you got to understand is that the whole point of this episode is to give you guys a good base to build off of so unless you live in the greater philadelphia area these things might not work for you but it's a good thing to start and then go from there so yeah i i think i think i think what we're going to be talking about is the basics of uh of what we do. I think really probably the thing that may change from from area to area is maybe just temperatures um, mm-hmm. and the ability to get the temperatures into the range that you need to get them into to sort of stimulate uh, stimulate them to go. Um, right. I think with carpets in particular, um, I think that temperature is a, is a big thing. Um, they yes. come from uh, an area where uh, you know, it does get cold, and they do go through that type of cycle. Um, and I, I, I think that uh, I can speak from experience. The first year that I bred, I took them down to 75 at night, mm-hmm. and um, it was a disaster year. Um, I didn't yeah. get anything. I saw a lot of lockups and everything like that, but I just couldn't get them to go. Um, really for me, the magic number is 70 degrees. 
But we'll get into agree. that uh, we as, will. We, as we go down. Yes. So basically we're going to run through, um, I guess, basically from the beginning all the way mm-hmm. to getting the babies to eat, you know. So, uh Uh-oh. That's even the thing. <laughs> right when you think your work is done when they've hatched, incorrect. Your work oh, is just no. done. So, I mean... No, you're not done until those things are like a year old. So, yeah, dispel that yeah. rumor right now. I mean, Jesus Christ. Getting them is your thing. Getting the eggs is a, can be a struggle. Getting the babies to hatch can be a struggle. And then getting babies to eat can be a struggle. So, yeah. <laughs> I find that's my biggest struggle. Yeah. Um, with, uh, I, did, I did talk to... Um, I did talk to Julie when we were at Tinley, and uh, I was talking to her about albinos, and if she had any issues with trying to get them to uh, to get them started, and yeah. she said that she had, and I think she was talking to Todd, and he more or less said hoppers is the way to go. Straight live up, hoppers. live hoppers. Yep. Yep. And guess what? Yep. First meals, live hoppers. <laughs> yep. And you know what? That is honest to God what worked for my bread life is when they hatched, they were, I guess the better word, would, the good word would be afraid of the mice, the dead mice. So it, I had to put in a live mouse to get them to eat. And then it was just breaking them to life. And you, you guys, you guys kind of got to be fluid about that stuff. You got to learn, you got to have some options and you know, it, it's all right. So the thing's eating live. That's not the worst thing in the world. You can eventually break it up live. Um, or if the thing's eating freaking, uh, you know, quail or day-old quail or, you know, hopper heads or, you know, rat tails, it doesn't matter. The thing's eating, and now you can move forward when it gets a little bit more power underneath it. So, you know, right. get it started and then go from there. Not everything's going to come out blazing on, you know, rat pinks. So... Yeah, so uh, um, before we jump into it, though, uh, Hamburg was this past weekend. How was that? How did that go? Hamburg was fun. Hamburg is always as fun as it can be. Um, Hanging out with Jason, I got to see uh, Eric Kohler was there, and he brought his Exanic, and I got to play with that. And how he said, oh, (laughs) Uh, God, I love Exanic. What, like an adult? No, an adult? It was a juvie, but he's big enough to breed this year if he's got the right girl. Um, he brought two exanics. One of them was kind of striped. So he said he's going to try to throw that one to a tiger female. And then he had a normal exanic, and he said he's going to chuck that with, uh, I think, a caramel or something like that. Either way, both gorgeous animals, and they were very pretty. And I got to see uh, – um, I just happened to be at Eric Kohler's table while he and Jason Balin were dividing up the tiger IJ – clutch so um it was i got to see all the things that you would have gone gaga for but you know i saw them so it was like that's a nice ij that's an also nice ij so um but that was cool uh mike Curtin was there and he gave me a pillowcase that i was supposed to give to you um yeah so and i did that um yeah other than that it well, was hanging out what good yeah, speaking of uh, Tiger IJs, um, yeah, I was able to work out a, a deal with Mr. Curtin, and 
you know, uh, I have the Tiger IJ. Um, that thing is huge. Male. Yeah. It is big. a big IJ, man. That is <laughs> that is like shit. I got a hold of an IJ. I mean, that is that is a big <laughs> boy. I'm like, he's handed it over. I'm like, what yeah. the hell is this? A coat? I think it's not an IJ. I'm like, what the hell? Eric doesn't have cages yeah. this big. So, you know, I was making fun of you for about 10 minutes. So, but he's a big boy. I didn't even get to see him because I kind of forgot about him for a little bit. I handed him off the mat and that was it. So, but you sent pictures of him uh, today to me. And I'm like, that was, he was pretty cool looking. So, yeah. Now you're involved yeah. in that project. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really know, like, uh, if that uh, project, uh, you know, I, I haven't really seen anybody do anything with it, um, except I, for Balin and, and Eric Kohler. But yeah. um, there was a baby boy that Kohler and Balin were dividing up. I'm not sure who got it, but he was dark, dark, dark red, and he had a stripe from the base of his head all the way down to his tail. On the back. My yeah. thinking is is that my my thinking is is that the striping is going to work similar to what we see in tigers and coastals. Of course. Um. Of course. Yeah. Same with jungles and whatnot. So I think it's going to be, be good to get. Spread. Yeah. I mean, well, it was good because they had like four point like six or seven. So there's going to be some girls that could potentially bring some new life back into this along with their brothers. So, um, yeah, and I think in a couple of years, you might start seeing some Tiger very nicely striped IJs, which would be kind of cool for you IJ people out there. Um, I'm good where I'm at. So, um, <laughs> yeah, as far as the breeding for the uh, IJs, I'll be handling that throughout this episode. <laughs> yeah. There was... Uh, you know, well, there's... Sh- shut up. Um, there was the... <laughs> I forgot to tell you... Um, I split a table with Andrew, and Andrew okay. brought this. Uh, Andrew brought this pearl Burmese python to the show, and I'm like, "All right, well, it looks pretty, but it has some stuck shed on it." I'm like, "We can't have that." So I start picking the shed off. All of a sudden, it's my my fingers are in her mouth, and she's just clamped down, and I'm like, "That's not good," and she lets go. And then bites my other hand and then wraps up both hands. So she has me handcuffed and I'm bleeding everywhere. So, and this is happening before the show is opening. And, you know, I have those new Rogue t-shirts. They're Uh white. So I'm bleeding all over my Rogue shirt. And Andrew's taking pictures. He didn't help for the first, like, ten minutes. And then he finally gets (laughs) the thing off me. And And it was one of those where people are walking around and looking at you and talking and pointing and, no one's hoping as you're bleeding. So it was it was a good Hamburg where, you know, any show where you start with, you know, a mass injury is a great one. But um, the only thing I can think about is, and, and Eric loves these things. Eric loves berms. I freaking hate berms now. So. I have officially retired my uh, big. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> No more. Yeah. The only so. the only big snake there's two big snakes that I would keep and I don't even consider them big as far as, you know, retic or berm size or yeah. rock would be. Olives yeah. okay. and king horn eye. 
King Horn Eye, are, are you psychotic? That's yeah, King what? Horn and I can get pretty big, but yeah, also uh, with the scrub, they would have <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, they would have to. They, I, I'd have to have a special spot for them, but yeah. they they would be uh, something that I would consider. It was it was funny because I have the tannin bars because uh, you were yeah. getting ready, you getting ready your tannin bars, and I put them in drawers uh, back here. I put them in tubs back here, and I I went and I fed them the other day. And your male was like, oh, thank you. And he takes the the food, and he goes right back in. He calms down. I open up the female's tub, and she rockets past the thing, lands, like, on the floor, and is flipping out. I'm like, yeah, okay, this was my animal, and that was Eric's animal. So now we know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, she's back uh, here, and she's like, they're just food. It's like, okay, all right. So, it's... <laughs> uh, you know, next week, uh, so... For everybody that's uh, sort of uh, along with us for the ride for this show, we have the uh, NPR chat going over on Facebook. Um, basically how it works is if you want to be added into it, send me a message and we can uh, add you along. But uh, if you guys over there have any questions and you're listening live as we go through, uh, just feel free to uh, to shoot them over. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, two things. So, um, I'm, I'm real excited about the episode for next week. Um, uh-huh. As you know, uh, Scott Heeper is going to be coming on. Uh, yeah. He is uh, from Australia, and um, I am about th- uh, probably about halfway. He has a book um, uh-huh. that is called A Guide to Australian Snakes in Captivity. It's a lapids and colubrids which uh, I'm just finding pretty cool because it's it's neat to uh, to know what could possibly kill us when we are on our trip. <laughs> well, it's like it's like I told you. I'm like, hey, tiger snakes kind of look. I'm like, I'm like, hey, tiger snakes kind of look like womas, and you're like, you better learn the difference real quick. I'm like, yeah, it's something I should probably do. Yeah, because I'll be like, look, I found a oh shit. So yeah, I mean, like that would we we kind of want to know these things. So. I think it was earlier this week we got a message and um basically Scott was walking out in out in the field and yeah. uh yeah, sure enough he comes across the carpet plates on right there and uh, you know man, it's it, did you wild. see the uh did you see all the uh posts uh, or all the all the news? Some guy in Australia went to go pump his gas and a carpet python was hanging out on the gas pump. Really? Wow. Yeah, like I've seen this picture like twenty times. It looks like where the hose comes down, where you grab it to fill up your uh, to, to to put it in your car to fill up the gas. Right around where you grab is the carpet python's head, and he looks like he's mixed ah. in with all the tubes and stuff. So all I can uh-huh. think about is someone's gonna reach in there and be like, "Holy crap!" Which could have been what happened, but it was just funny as all hell. And I'm like, "Well, you know." That would be awesome if we're like going to go pump gas and we're like, oh my god, a carpet python. So I mean, certain people would probably find that amazing. Other people would kind of find that terrifying. So yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I also um, uh, I get <laughs> I guess my weakness for um, uh, short-legged animals is kicking in, uh, but. Um, the blue tongue skinks have also kind of caught my eye since I wait, took wait. care of Zach's 
<laughs> when he was wait, wearing, wait, wait. Uh, you said Denmark. short-legged animals. Are, are you saying that because you have dachshunds, you're more prone to skinks? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, no. well, well here's, the, here, here's the funny thing. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the book, um, uh-huh. and I'm, I'm flipping through, and I think I uh, had Critter Cam on, and uh, I, you know I was watching the episode on blue tongue skinks, and probably my favorite one of all of them is the is the black one, the melanistic one. That thing is just that's just insane. Um, anyway, my wife is watching it with me, and she's kind of like, "Oh wow, they're really cute," and I'm like, "Oh boy, oh Here we damn go. it, <laughs> oh son of a bitch." <laughs> Been nice knowing you, so you know. Yeah. We change so. change the radio show. Yeah. And and no, Nick no, no, put no, out no, that. No, 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 no. Nick put out that. Uh, didn't you just do a uh, uh, got an he article did a blog um, on? Uh, yeah, a blog entry on. Yeah. And there was a big picture of a skink. So I, what is up with skinks being everywhere? Yeah, I remember Mr. Mr. Bias telling me about three years ago that they were going to be the next big thing, you know, I don't he, know. Now, now, how pissed do you think he is that he was correct on that? <laughs> you know, it was funny you sent us that message today, and it's kind of like, uh, remember when you said that you were in the water pythons before they were cool? <laughs> yeah, right, I was. It's like, kind of like... <laughs> oh, I was man. in the water pythons before they were cool. God damn it. Yeah. Go full hipster on us with the whole like I, yeah. I did skinks before they were cool. Yeah. Before they were cool. But um yeah. no, I, I think it's probably just the ease of care. Uh very similar to Morelia in a lot of ways, but you know me, I'm it, not really um a lizard guy, so I have not taken that plunge yet, but No, no, so, I mean if it's got legs trip, you don't know what to do with so Yeah, with the trip coming up I'm I'm sort of uh I, I'm really diving in to research, you know, all the different now Because, you know, we're going there to see carpets and whatnot, but I'll tell you what, man, if we see a blue-tongued skink on the road or, you know, in somebody's garden or something <laughs> like that, I don't care how much we don't want to keep them, that's just going to be badass. I mean, it's just going to be nuts, you know? So That is true. It's, it's funny because you're like, the trip's coming up. It's like, yes, yes, it is coming up a year from now. It's like you're, yeah. you're correct there in a year. So, yeah. Uh, I got a lot of prep to do, man. I know. <laughs> you know. I'll, I'll so. compare your prep to my prep. I'm gonna go get my passport and then just sit, because then I figure if we're out in the bush, <laughs> we're out in the bush. I'm just gonna be like, Eric, will this kill me? And as I'm as I'm running towards it, you have to answer quickly yeah. or I die. So you know. Uh, well, I got to no be pressure. brushed up for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So. Um, the business. Let's get into some carpet python breeding. So well, we did, did want to talk about that uh, one thing, that jungle thing. Oh, yeah, the red jungle. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. Um, Neither do I. And so, it's one of those things where, like, I'm not even sure if half the people over on the Facebook message know what the hell we're talking about. So, Yeah, I don't you know, know if I have a link to it or not. Let's see. I have a, I have a picture. Let's see if I can I find it. I got the picture. I got the picture. Oh, okay. There we go. That thing. Did you send it over? Yeah, I, I threw yeah, it over there you, on the... Did... It's on the chat. I got it. It's there. 
I does it, it have there. any? Uh... Okay, so basically, um... I'll put that on the pick of the week or the NPR. Keep going. So yeah, so basically, from what I understand of this story, um, this was a while ago. This is uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. This was actually when I was going when I was purchasing uh, Citrus Tiger. So this is back in 2009, 2010. Uh, I remember this when when Will are we talking about when Will got the thing? Because I was at that show and I well, saw it as a. Yeah, no, I know he produced. Uh, I don't. I don't know who he picked it up. He picked it up from Jason, right? Yep, Balin. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So he picked up this from Jason. And, um, produ- well, I guess it had to be 2011 then that he produced it. I think um, so, yeah. So, in 2011, he bred, he bred that, and he produced these, I think he only had two in the clutch, um, mm-hmm. which were basically red jungles, um, for, for lack of a better description uh maybe if you know what uh, an ij looks like when it's born or a caramel or a darwin or something along those lines um that's what the jungle looked like now i guess everybody was very speculative back then basically thinking maybe it had coastal in it somewhere or some type of cross or who knows Mm -hmm. uh, what the deal was um at the time i didn't know that they were from from jason so I don't know him to really be mixing uh, jungles up. So, for all intents and purposes, I guess it's pure jungle. I mean, I really don't know. I'd have to talk more to Will to find out. But basically what he did is he he bred those together and he got this animal that's over on the chat, which he's basically calling the super form, I guess. It's funny because if you look at his original animal that he picked up from Balin, it is bright red. And then if you see her when she gets older, she looks like a classic jungle, maybe a little bit less of a yellow, kind of a little bit of a duller yellow, but she looks like a normal jungle. And then I believe the babies that were produced, I don't know if they were, I think they started out, maybe some of them started off as red or whatever. So he raised them up and bred them back together and he got that animal which looks crazy. So it's like, the hell if yeah. I know what's going on there, but it would be one of those things of like, I'd love to try to figure it out. Um, and it's, it's very, very interesting looking animal. And um, it, it, it just, it's just mind boggling, especially because when you think about it, is that I think he bought that original red female from Balin at like original jungle prices. Like it was like 300 bucks or something like that. So it's like no one ever thought it was going to be anything special, but that is a killer-looking animal. So we may need to, uh, you know, interrogate Mr. Bird again on the radio show about this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know without doing the proper – and, again, Will may have done this, and I I, I don't know. But, I mean, in order to call that a super, I would think that you would have to breed that to – a non-related jungle and produce well, all animals that look like that. We're all right. red jungles. And what I think he did is he took the son and bred it back to the mother to produce this animal. Right. So now uh-huh. what he has to do is take this one and throw it to a completely unrelated jungle and see if he gets reds. 
I mean, I guess it's possible that there could be. I mean, it, jungles and coastals and that, being so similar, I, I would imagine that you know, who's not to say out of the realm of possibility. So, and the other thing is that you know, okay, so even if it doesn't come across as a super, it's still something freaky. It might be something else genetic. I mean, now comes the point where you've got to kind of try to test it to see what it's made out of, and that would be crossing it to completely unrelated animals until you figure it out. I mean, this yeah. is how vetting happens. We produce it, and then we have to kind of backtrack to see where the hell it's coming from. Sometimes it's easy, well, but it's recessive, but sometimes it's not. Yeah, well, this, this, this is where uh, lineage is important. Mm-hmm. This is where lineage and knowing where your stock came from is important, uh, because if something were to pop out, uh, something crazy, uh, at least you would have an idea uh, to where to start. Um, and also, you know, what makes it difficult with carpets is the variability um, that they have. So is this just a a one-off thing? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. It's hard to tell. So I guess time will tell. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, at least it's moving forward, the project, and, uh, you know, yeah. but, but not for nothing, that's just a killer carpet python, so. It is. It's crazy looking. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Anyway. Um, okay, so, carpet python breeding. Um, yes. So, like we said, the disclaimer, um, you know, this is how we do it, and this is just to give you the idea of uh, what to look for uh, when breeding carpet pythons. I guess the best place to start would be, uh, so carpets are broken up into two groups. Uh, there's the winter breeders, and then there's spring mm-hmm. breeders. Uh, basically, the winter breeders consist of the Irian Jayas, the Darwins, Jungles, Coastals, and the uh, winter or spring breeders uh, are the Inlands, the Diamonds, uh, imbricata, bread lie, uh, and basically it has to do with uh, the temperature is a big thing. Uh, the spring breeders usually take uh, four to five years to mature, so they're a little slower mm-hmm. to mature. They come from a region uh, that basically the temps are going down pretty low uh, during the winter. We were joking before before the show because you were talking about some issues you were having with your room and getting the temperatures right and you mm-hmm. know uh I said just breed diamond pythons. Diamonds I know diamonds and bread Never have to do with this crap again. Yep. Just diamonds and brettles. So So yeah, so they come from a region uh where that experienced low temps and during the winter and uh the activity is at a low for this period. So basically uh, they, they they don't hibernate, but they they're pretty much hunkering down and uh, during the winter cooling and uh, you know they will come out to bask, but their activity is kind of at a halt until mm-hmm. uh, spring kicks in. Where uh, uh, the as far as the winter breeders, um, the one thing I will say is that um, one thing that I have noticed is that IJs in particular are always the first to breed for me personally. Uh, they don't really need that much of a uh, temperature drop. Um, 
I would say maybe along the lines of what you see in Condros, uh, possibly you might be able to produce. If you were able to produce a carpet python year-round, my guess would be it would be an IJ. Um, well, for some maybe, not for others. <laughs> um, I think, honestly, Owen, I think that's why you have trouble with them because mm. I think you are going too late, and that's why well, you keep pissing them. Well, there's that. I mean, there was last year I had them in with each other the entire freaking season, but I moved. And then the year before, I had them in for the entire freaking season, and remember she escaped and got, like, out of the room and got, like, near dead. So, yeah, there have been other circumstances that have prevented me from producing those little bastards. So, you know. Your love hate relationship with the Syrian uh, so guy no carpet by there's, there's no love at all. Nothing but hate. So, um, so yeah. So whereas, uh, so to just to put it into uh, numbers, so you can understand what I'm talking about. All my other carpets, uh, well, all my other winter breeders um, that I uh, breed, basically. I'm looking at a 70-degree uh, nighttime low. Um, so the heat's off, the room goes down to 70, whereas with IJs, I have bred them at 78 degrees drop. So mm. it basically has to do with where they're from. I mean, the temperature swings are not really as drastic as, you know, the, the farther south you go. And I think that you'll find that uh, carpets breed in sort of the order that you find them on a globe. Uh, IJs first, Darwin's, Jungles, Coastals, you know, Inland's, Diamonds, Breadline, that kind of thing. So, um, mm-hmm. Although I have not bred Inland's or Diamond's, and I do not own Inbricata, so I'm just going with that by what I've heard. <laughs> but, uh, but what we've heard and what we've been told and. Whatever, all yeah, evidence true. points towards this. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so, let's start with the preseason. Um, what I would consider preseason for me uh, is basically, I would say probably maybe June, July, somewhere in that vein. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, basically, you're picking out your pairs. Uh, you're looking at you know what. Who you think is going to uh, be in in the in the roster for the upcoming year? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what if you have to put some size on uh, any of them or whatever the case may be? I mean, I don't know. What do you what What do you do preseason wise? Well, preseason is definitely bulking up the girls for the last couple of feeds before it's time to start. You know, and everybody gets in the proper amount of feeds before you start going down with that stuff. So, you know, like you said, July, August, you're really trying to get in those last couple feedings to make sure everybody is on the up and up. And also you're assessing the situation of, you know, animals you've been raising up. Yes, this animal's old enough, but you know what? It was kind of being a little bit of a jerk this year with not feeding so it's not up to the perfect size I want. So screw it, you're you're not going this year. I mean, it also is you got you kind of kind of make the decision around that time, because 
there's really no point in putting them through the whole kit and caboodle with, you know, taking them off food, emptying, emptying them out, and getting them ready to breed if you don't think that they're going to be, you know, breeding size. Because there's no expanding. There's no, if they're not up to size by July or August, there's no way you're going to get them up to size by sending them down for breeding. So you might want to keep them up and try feeding them and maybe try breeding them late, but you kind of run a lot of risks. So I like to kind of figure out where I'm going with all my guys as of August, you know, who's breeding, what's breeding. Even, even if you haven't picked the pairings or who's breeding with who, know who you got to shuffle around, you know, which male's this, which male's that, you know, which females are ready. So, uh, but I would try to get in, you know, that's where I try to give them the larger meals like uh, XL rats, um, bigger things um, to kind of try to feed them. It's usually the last time I fill my fridge is around August with the big things. And I'll fill it again in like September and October, but I'll never buy jumbos or XLs. I'll buy like mediums and smalls. So my animals are still eating in September and in the beginnings of October, but they're not getting their normal size meal. They're getting smaller meals. And it's really just the point of getting them to empty out uh, so that you don't have any feces in there when they go down for cooling or their stomachs are empty. And that's when, you know, you have animals that are really pissed off. Like one of my caramels, uh, like, broke her hide box and has been just kind of a really big jerk with wrecking her cage and then trying to bite me when I go in there. And it's because she's hungry. It's kind of all that stuff. And I know it's what's going on. So this is bite season right now. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll definitely uh, turn on. Um, well, also, then you picking up. Uh, oh, go ahead. I mean, well, also is that you know there, there's the other aspect of it is that you know you got to start trying to get your room ready because if you can't regulate your room, there's really no point in taking it down because if you have a draft or you have something else going on in there, you got to fix it before the weather starts getting real bad. I mean. Uh, we we were talking earlier before the show, and I actually have a draft in my room that, you know, this is my first cool down here. So I'm still messing around trying to figure out how this room works when it comes to the seasonal changes. And I have this nice draft in my room that's kind of messing me up here, which is why I haven't started cooling yet, because I don't want to risk it. So I will be correcting that issue with mass amounts of, you know, construction and then we're off to the races. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, for me, um, basically, I, I'm a little more regimented in the pairs that I have. So there's really hmm. not. Uh, no I don't really play with uh, you. <laughs> yeah, I've sort of already picked out my pairs because um, I already know sort of what I'm doing. Uh, that's how Eric I bought my project. Yeah, like three or four yeah. years ago, he knew what he was breeding this year. Well, well, I would recommend to people that if you, I, I think that this is a, an important topic that often gets overlooked when it comes to breeding, and I don't hear a lot of people talk about it. Is you know, if you think that you're going to just put two carpet pythons together, or just two snakes together for that matter, mm-hmm. and for some reason you're going to stand out in a crowd. You are sadly mistaken, my friend. Um, <laughs> you're just not going to. People aren't going to give two craps. Um, yeah. You know, so you should be real selective 
than what you're pairing. I mean, I know that, that we talk about selective breeding and all that, um, but it doesn't have to be something fancy in order for it to be selective. Uh, you could, you know, if you're working with, uh, just take IJs, for example. I mean, you know, you could be refining a, a stripe or a banded project or maybe you want something to have higher contrast. Maybe you're trying to get, uh, you know, a, a, a darker animal, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, you sort of have to, to to figure out, you know, for instance, if you have a really dark animal, you're not going to go and put it with a really light animal if you're trying to selective breed it. You know, selectively breeding is, is more than just, you know, putting two animals together. And uh, it's really, uh, wow, is that a parenti? Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get this. Um, Stop sending the parenti pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, so uh yeah, that's kind of an important thing with me. But my pairs are already sort of picked out and basically I have a backup plan to that because I think that's another aspect that people don't that think is. about. You know, sometimes they want to have just one male for a project and I think that sometimes that may be a mistake. Having a backup male is uh is not a bad idea uh when it comes to a particular project because that male may not be ready or may not go or you may run into a problem. So when you have or just a one point one group. of a project yeah. it might you might run into trouble where one might not might not go. I learned that with my Exantic. So I've been trying to do uh double head of snow now yeah. for three years <laughs> and for well, some reason I can't get the Exantic girl to go. So do something yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, it's it should have put those, me in a stall, you know, in a stall. Pattern, I know. So it's, so it's like one of those things that if you limit yourself to one point one of animals, I mean, uh, if you have one point one of a project, that's fine. But always have a backup hitter in the background. You know, if I need to, if this boy won't produce, if this won't happen, what are my plans? Now, you know, if I if my jungle doesn't go, you know, obviously my backup is one of my other jungle males. But say I only got one type of this animal, like uh, this year, if my Maclot male doesn't want to breed, I'm screwed. <laughs> it's like, we're done. That's it. So that's the gamble you run with the 1.1s. And if this is an important core project, don't paint yourself into a corner like that, Eric. So it's, you know, it, it's just one <laughs> well, of those things. Sometimes that's all you can afford. Oh, yeah, but look at it. <laughs> But no, no, but you, you know, Danik doesn't breed, and you're breeding the albino male to her, correct? Yeah. You have so albino many jag. other jag. I apologize. Fancy. Anyway, you you have so many other females that the albino jag could go with. If she doesn't want to go, you can still salvage him for the season by using him with other females. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. you lose the snow project, but he's not useless. So that's awesome. So yeah. you kind of almost got a plan for it. It's almost like I have Echo right now as my red tiger jag, and he breeds with, you know, whatever I need him to breed with that year. Um, but I still have his father. And I have his father as like a backup hitter because Talon will breed with a piece of rope if it showed interest. So if if I ever need it, it's like backup hitter, there he goes. So it's good to have backups. Yeah. So when it comes to 
Okay, so you have your pair picked out. Um, you know what you're, you're shooting for, and, you know, like we said, you know, you said you start in August, I'm starting in June. Um, and um, basically what I'm doing at that point from June until about the end of October is I'm feeding heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really feed anything larger than a large rat, although I have uh, I have thought about feeding um, rabbits uh, to my mm. females um, come August, and I think that that uh, is going to be my approach, um, you know, for now, from now forward. Um, but uh, I, I just... I think that that's just a bigger me, you know, not not a large rabbit like you're going to feed a berm or a retic, but um, I just think that uh, <laughs> I just trying to swallow a ten pound rabbit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll um, get there. I think that uh, I'm just curious, you know. I, I've talked to some people from Australia. Um, I've talked to some other people. Um, just the variety in the diet. That, that I kind of uh, I kind of cycle feed is what I what I've sort of fell into how I approach that, uh, which we'll get into more of that later. Um, mm. but that's that's a big thing of what I do. So I don't really focus on size. When I first got into it, I was really focused on, you know, the female has to be 2,000 grams, and, you know, if it's a coastal, it has to be 2,500 grams. And, um, right. you know, I, I do not look at that. I look at age and... Mm-hmm. Um, a trick that uh, Balin taught me was to look at the head. Yeah. Uh, a head of a mature uh, adult carpet uh, has a very distinct look to it. It's chunky. It's got, you know, it's just a the big chunky head, head as opposed to, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to uh, uh, an immature uh, carpet. Now, uh, whew, males. Basically, I've bred males at 600 grams. Um, eighteen months. I think that, yeah, I think males. You know, I, I don't think you really need. Um, I don't really think you need. Uh, you know, to have really really big males. I keep males yeah. on the smaller side. Uh, there's there's no yeah. real formula for boys because, you know, younger boys may turn out to be better breeders than older boys. And like I said, if it sheds and there's some sperm plugs, give him a shot. You know, he might get freaked out over the size of the female, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's not ready to go at 18 months old. So, yeah. you know, it's just it's uh, it's one of those things where you won't know until it's trying, until you try. But uh, there's no harm in trying a younger male like you would have with a younger female. You know, younger girl breeds, you could have egg binding, you can have a lot of complications. Younger male breeds, you're just going to get eggs or he's just going to run away from the female yeah. and you just pull him out. So there's no real issue. And also, if it's a younger male, um, you don't necessarily have to put him through the whole winter things. You can always just try to see what he does with minimum temperature changes and no swapping down of food. So uh, sometimes it works. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So that's sort of the. Uh, I mean, as far as our, 
uh, basically our approach to size. I think it has mm-hmm. to do more with age. I think, like we said earlier, that the uh, the diamonds, bread lie, imbricata, and uh, inlands, I think, have to be uh, older, maybe four or five years of age, uh, yeah. whereas yeah. I think... You can breed a female two and a half years, uh, but I like to wait the three years, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's just the way I feed. I have done it with uh, two and a half year old females. I have bred them, and I have had success, uh, so it can be done. Um, but uh, you know, for me, it's it's not about a race. I'm not in it for the race. I'm just trying to have mm-hmm. healthier animals, and it, you know, it, that's it's funny that you but, breed. So much earlier because I wait till usually till the girl's four to breed, and um, really, yeah, I wait till four. So, four and then my, uh, I know, right? It's uh, my um, my uh, my brettles. I got them when they were five years old, and then they had one clutch with me when they were six. And then they didn't have any last year. They're about seven or eight years old now. Um, yeah. And I think they're just coming into their freaking stride, like, when it comes with brettles. So I think they need to be older. So, yeah, I usually wait for a girl to when she's four years old, then I wait for a boy, you know, 18 months. Like, I have males that I produced in 2014 that if they're still here around breeding season, they may be going in with males because then they're proven breeders. Ha-ha! <laughs> so, um, it's right. one of those things, but yeah, yeah, it's, that's weird. I thought I thought you did the two and a half year age. No, yeah. okay, no. I usually wait till girls are girls are four and boys are. Yeah, that's why Owen doesn't produce that many animals as quickly as you do. So it's you know, <laughs> but, okay. but but the first but the first clutch at four is like 20, 30 eggs. So it, like, catches up all the other clutches that I might have missed. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's you know, that's supposedly uh, one of the things that uh, as you, if you wait, you're going to get, uh, you know, a, a better clutch out of the female. Um, mm-hmm. So um, that's something that you should think about. Um so cycling, that would be the next thing that, that you have to think about pre-season-wise. And basically, there's uh, cycle feeding, uh, there's light cycles, and then what mm-hmm. mostly everybody focuses on is uh, is uh, the uh, temperature cycling. Um, yeah. So light cycles, um, I don't know about you. I have a window in my room. I really don't do anything other than the lights turn off and on based on the outside lights. I don't know. I mean, there's some breeders that, that do use lights for cycling. There's some that don't. I don't know whether uh, I, it's important I not. or not important. Um, I don't well, you have the window. I don't. I mean, right. I, I, I've never had a window, so I always just did 12 and 12. 12 hours light, 12 hours dark. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't like. I said I don't know if it's important or not important. Um, I know people that have bred it with it, and I know have people who have bred without it. Yeah. Uh, so, that's that's kind of that's my thoughts on that. Um, 
As far as the feeding cycle, like I said, uh, so for me, um, basically I feed uh, from, I'd say, June, May or June um, is kind of when my females are are back in the the swing of things. Um, And that really depends on if I'm doing maternal incubation or artificial incubation. With artificial mm-hmm. incubation, uh, it kicks up a little a little sooner. Um, mm-hmm. With um, with uh, maternal incubation, uh, obviously that female is not. Uh, people have fed their females while they're on eggs, um, but mm-hmm. I I I have not done that. Um, I just don't want the female to take a crap on the eggs. Basically, <laughs> that's why I right. never offered. Right. However, she has one job. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to get that female uh back up to size uh for the following breeding season if you're going to do uh, maternal incubation. That's that's kind of one of the to the downfalls of maternal incubation, but we'll get into that later when we talk about incubation. Um so as far as cycle feeding. So come that time I start feeding, I feed females uh probably biweekly. I feed males once a month and these are adults. Um, and as I get closer to August, I really start upping that, uh, females probably feed weekly. Sometimes I feed twice a week. Um, but the difference is, is that I do not feed from November until May. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, pretty much what I'm not feeding either. Yeah. My females are really not getting food except there is, I will offer uh, a meal or two, and we'll get into this in a little bit, a meal or two once I warm the room back up. Yes. Um, but other than that, they're not getting anything, and those are smaller meals. So that's why I kind of mm-hmm. like, that's how I, I approach the cycle feeding. Um, I think Justin talked about it on the Imbricata show about, you know, that he was thinking that that, that may be an approach just based off of what's going on in Australia, um, you know, I, it seems to work for me. But again, there are people that don't cycle feed that breed carpets, and the, and 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 they're successful. You know, they uh, they they pretty much just feed. You know, the normal Python strategy, and it seems to work just well. Uh, but um, I don't know. It, I, to me, it seems to to turn them on. This is the cue that you're ready to go. So right. um, I think that there's more than one cue when it comes to uh, getting these animals to uh, think that it's breeding time and I should be doing this. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's also um, the female needs to, I think that the female needs to know that the cost, the, the, what's going to cost her to produce this clutch of eggs, that she has those reserves I think that it gets them to think that, okay, you know, in the wild, I guess my thinking would be that if an animal knows that there's prey around, that uh, they'll say, okay, this is a good year to breed, and all this effort that I'm going to put into producing, you know, offspring is going Mm -hmm. to pay off, and they're not going to perish because of lack of, you know, prey. Right. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, maybe I'm giving them more credit than, than 
do, but uh, that's kind of my thought. So, um, yeah. And then uh, temperature cycling. So I guess uh, we'll get into that. So let's let's start at. Uh, let me just start from where I would cycle feed. So, and I think you kind of approach this the same way. So up here in Pennsylvania, um, it probably I used to start to drop temps um, in October. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I found is is that the cold really doesn't kick in until November. So I've pushed that back. So I feed all the way up until Halloween, you know, with that cycle feeding. And then once Halloween right. comes, I no, I don't feed for the entire month of November. However, I do not drop. I don't drop temps until about the end of November. Uh, then right. basically my temperature cycle starts. Um, and, uh, you know, so basically, like I think you said earlier, Owen, you know, allow the females and the males to kind of to get everything out of their system and empty out. Right. You know, because you don't want them sitting at cold temperatures, uh with food digesting right. in system. So. Right. You might even have to soak a few of them to make sure things are moving appropriately and they're completely empty by the time it's time. So, you know, it's a few things you kind of got to keep in mind. Yeah, although I don't see why it would be a problem simply because of the fact that I... I think the problem when it comes to cycling temperatures is what people don't realize is that it really doesn't come... It, it's really the nighttime temperature yeah. that's what drops. It's not the yeah. daytime temperature um, for me. It's the nighttime yeah. temperature. So uh, basically, I don't know. Go ahead, Owen. Lay down what you well, do, and then I'll, I'll say what I do. Well, what I'll do, and again, this is I'm still fucking around with this room, um, is I have the nighttime drops on all their heat panels. So the room is heated to... 80, 82 degrees. And during the winter, that thing's going to naturally drop down. So what I usually do is, is I will have, the room will cool naturally, and there's just a way, nothing you can do about that. So instead of fighting it, you kind of use it. Let the cold weather outside drop your room down a certain number of degrees until it does go into the 70s, even or even as low as down as 70 degrees at nighttime. Uh, if you have heaters in your room, you may have to, like, turn them down every night and then turn them up every morning to make sure that the room does climb back up towards 80, 82 during the daytime. Uh, now, I have herbstack fours on all my adult cages that run the night drops. And those night drops I will program to start ticking down maybe one degree every few days, uh, until about around the middle of winter where I let the night drop tick all the way down to 70. But during the daytime, it still climbs back up to around 82, 83 degrees inside the cage at the heat, uh, with the heat panels. So they're really only down near 70 uh, for maybe a week or two, and then it starts kind of ticking back up a little bit. I don't let them all drop all the way down. It's I don't really like taking them all the way down and keeping them down there. So I will let a few nights go all the way down to 70, but um, 
and I usually do it sporadically. Like one night it goes down to 70, and then for the next few nights it only goes down to like 72, uh, 73. So you can kind of do all that stuff too. And, you know, the other thing is you also got to kind of keep in mind is that you need to heat the room, and also you have other animals in the room that aren't breeding. You don't want to, you know, really mess up everybody. So those cages and those racks need to remain heated, but you don't want to drop the temperature in the room so far down that you also end up affecting the animals that you're not breeding. So, you know, sometimes you got to move some cages around, move some animals into different cages, different places. This way one whole rack is now the animals that you aren't breeding and that can stay heated and other racks are, you know, all animals that you are breeding and that one can kick down. So normally what I do is around December, January, we're down at 70 uh, for the night. So around late December through to about mid-January, we're dipping down to around 70 uh, a couple nights a week. And then around the beginning of February, you start kicking back up in temperature-wise. So. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, I, I do something very similar. Um, so November 1st is when my temperatures uh, start to drop. I go through mm-hmm. a 10-week process. Um, the first five weeks, um, I gradually uh, lower the temperature at night. Uh, mm-hmm. So the room temperature during the day is about 80 degrees. Uh, there's a 85-degree uh, hot spot. And uh, at night for the first week, you're probably looking, it's probably going to 75 to 73 degrees. Now, at night, I turn off all the heat, everything, mm-hmm. hot spots, the whole deal. Um and basically, I use uh, her stats, and I just program it to uh, to to keep the well. I guess well. Let me rephrase that. I keep the hot spot at seventy-five degrees. Right. So basically, the heat, heat really doesn't. Ki- yeah, the heat doesn't kick on, but it won't go below seventy-five. Do is I gradually lower that over uh, the next four weeks. Uh, you know, till I hit a base of 70 degrees. Uh, I'll keep it at 70 degrees um, for uh, probably maybe two two weeks, sometimes three weeks. So being dependent on what I'm seeing from the females and mm-hmm. how things are going um, mm-hmm. is really kind of what I do. Um, for IJs, uh, coastals, jungles, um, Darwin's basically at this point, uh, my pairs are together. So as soon as the, as soon as I start the drop in temperature, I put mm-hmm. the pairs together and I leave the pairs together. And I don't take that male out unless I'm using that male for other clutches, uh, for other females. Um, I leave them mm-hmm. together throughout the, the whole season. Um, so uh, once once we hit that 70 for the couple weeks, um, again, the daytime temps are 80, and mm-hmm. the hot spot's about 85. Um, I swing, I start gradually bringing back mm-hmm. up. 
Um, and then, you know, we're looking at about a five-week, four or five weeks, which typically brings us to sometime in January. Uh, my favorite time of year is the two weeks when there's no Morelia Python radio and there's no snake cleaning to do. <laughs> it's my two-week vacation yep. from snakes. Yep. And uh, basically during that time, there's nothing really to do other than um, just, you know, looking and making sure they have water. Um, but other than that, you know, there's no food, so there's no no real cleaning doing. Uh, and just so everybody knows, my babies go through the same process. Um, so it's not like I give them heat and keep them warm because my, my thought is that that's what they experience in the wild, so why would I change it? I think it also better acclimates them to my system, and I think that when they're ready to breed, they'll be they'll already be geared into to what my approach is to, mm-hmm. in my room. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of it. Back up to normal temperatures, um, and that's really uh, you know the whole the whole cycle of temperatures. Uh, I don't think there's much more to. Uh, now, when do you that, introduce you know, the, when do you when do you introduce the boys? Introductions, like I said, start for me as soon as uh um I start to drop tips. Um Yep. Yep. I I I think my approach is going to be different for the uh for the spring breeders simply because basically they're just doing nothing uh well, throughout well, that me, cool down. Yeah. When, when when I bred the brettles, I put them together in January. Okay. Yeah, and I got so I when got you warm them back up. Yeah, when you start to kind of warm them back up, so you know, and and the weird thing is that the brettles I do completely different than the rest of my other stuff. So, um, and they go through most of their cool down apart, and then in January they go together, but the cool down isn't really over yet because. You know, it's still cold outside. I don't move them back into the other room. So they're still kind of part of it between January and most of February. And we can get some really cold Februaries up here. So around the end of February is when I drag the brettles out of the side room. And from when I bred them the first year, they were locking from January all the way through February but I didn't get eggs until um, July. So it's like, you know, when the hell did we get grabbed? So they they may be breeding <laughs> all the way through. And that's the funny thing is that I keep talking to people who have tried breeding their brettles, and they see the couple locks in the beginning in around January, February, and then they don't see anything and they quit. I'm like, well, if I didn't get eggs until July, it means she didn't really get grabbed until, like, March, you know, Aprilish, kind of, you know, May maybe. So it's like, don't don't quit on them. Keep breeding them. Keep going. So and uh, I think one of the other big mistakes is a lot of people tend to take ob swells as gravid swells, and they pull the male and then they miss it entirely. So it's like, don't be afraid to leave the boy in for months, you know, until she is basking belly up. Then you can pull the boy, <laughs> or. Uh, you're absolutely certain. So uh, a lot of people, yeah. I think, give up too early on a lot of breeding animals. So 
uh, I put them together when you start cooling down, and I wouldn't pull them apart until like I would say July. If it's like a co- if it's a winter breeder, I wouldn't pull them apart until you start getting into the warm months. Um, and that is, if, of course, if you've seen no action. Like if if she's basking belly up, get him the hell out of there. Um, if they've been locking like crazy and now they're on separate ends of the cages, get him out of there. But if they've been kind of canoodling and nothing's really happening, don't be afraid to keep them in there longer. So. Yeah, when you talk to, uh, I'm just going to look at my book here real quick. Um, Not the sure magic we, stone. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we talk about diamond pythons, um, let me just find it here real quick. Um, so I wrote this down just from doing research as far as diamond pythons. And again, I, I haven't not bred diamond pythons, but this is going to kind of be my approach. Um, yes. uh, I believe that they're a very seasonal species. They come from, they're the southernmost ranging uh, python uh, in the world. Uh, so mm-hmm. it can get very cold uh, where they're from. Um, so during the summer, uh, basically they get a 13 to 14 hour photo period. Regular feeding, uh, I give them a basking temp of about 95 degrees. Ambience maybe 77, 82, somewhere in there. Nighttime, the temp turns off. You're, I mean, everything turns off. You're looking at a uh, nighttime temp of maybe 73 to 68 de- degrees, somewhere in that area. I should say 68 mm-hmm. to 73, somewhere in there. Once fall kicks in, I cut down the photo period, which actually I'm doing right now. It's more of a 10-hour photo period, um, uh, regular feeding, um, same as what uh, I was talking about, just just like I do with uh, the rest of my carpets. Um until basically November, uh, 82 to 86 basking temp. I lower that a little bit. Um, and you're looking at uh, probably, I'd say, somewhere in the 70s is the, is the ambient temp. Nighttime temps, you're looking at probably maybe high 60s, low 70s uh, for a nighttime temp. Um, uh, winter, once I get into that, we'll cut that down to an eight-hour photo period. Uh, 77 mm-hmm. degree basking temp, um, and then an ambient temp of you're probably looking in again uh, mid to high 60s, low 70s. Uh, I'm not feeding at this time. Probably nighttime low would probably be maybe 60s, low 60s, high 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, I guess as I go through this season. Uh, I'll be able to tell you how low uh, those those temps go. Uh, and then the spring, uh, springing it back up, 10-hour photo period. Um, they Basically, the, the basking is back up to uh, to an 86, you know, an ambient of uh, high 60s to uh, mid-70s, and nighttime still probably at 70 degrees, uh, I would say, somewhere in that area. Um and uh, from what I've read, uh, basically, you want to start the introductions of the male in the last month of the winter. Um, so basically, when you're coming out of the winter and going into uh, the spring, is, 
when you would do introductions. Right. Uh, and again, I don't know if that's the uh, the secret to success, but from talking to guys like Josh, Greg, Gary Vale, uh, those guys, that's basically kind of their approach. And, uh, my diamond pythons are out of the room, so they are not in my reptile room, so I'm able to uh, get those temps uh, more in line with that. So, but which makes them a really cool species because they're more like uh, you know colubrid almost. You know, it's not. Yeah. It, you don't really it, hibernate them, but they can really, as long as they get that basking spot, they're they're good to go, man. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of stick them in the. I, I stuck my guys over in the side room and or up in my bedroom that one year that I bred them, and it's almost like you set them and forget them. It's like the temperatures that we're going to get in this room in this area, fine for them. And it's honestly got the exact same thing I do with my colubrids, actually more so because I don't even take the colubrids out of the room. I just unplug their heat because it's just like no matter what temperatures we get to in this area, you guys are going to be fine with it. So, but I just have to make sure that you have a stat on them that allows the temperatures to climb beyond what they can normally get during the daytime. So, I mean, the I, I have a herb stat. I think this year I'm going to be running it with um with one of those uh oh god the vital exotics or whatever the the one the one of those herb one of those stats. So I don't have a right. night drop option. So every I have an alarm now set in my phone because I've already set it up that every night I'm going to go and I'm going to drop the temps. And then every morning on my way, when I do the normal check in the morning, because my mornings I wake up and it's like, let the dog out, feed the dog, turn on all the monitor lights, check on the snakes, get dressed, go to work. So part of my thing now <laughs> is turn turn up the brittle um, stack. So it's going to be that kind of a thing in, for the winter. So... Uh, and just as long as they get it. And what's really weird is that uh, I said I don't have a window, but the side room where the brettles hibernate does have a window. So they will actually have a winter-like photo period. So I don't know if that's helping. If I was more of a inclined, more of an Eric Burke-like person, I would study this. For me, I'm like, shh, man. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So. so one thing you have to understand about female um uh the female process in uh pythons is uh if you want to read more about this i would recommend picking up the complete carpet python if you don't already have it and ben um did a great uh chapter uh on this particular topic and um usually we've had him on in the past talking about breeding and uh, he kind of led me into the process of thinking about the cycle feeding and whatnot and making sure that the female has enough weight on mm-hmm. in order to for her to be triggered to reproduce. So folliculogenesis mm-hmm. um, is the first stage of the reproductive cycle for the female. And basically what's going on there is the follicles uh, are in, uh, within the ovary are hormonally recruited to begin to increase in size, um, but this is mostly fluids, um, and it's not really, it's not negligible amounts of energy um, that's used from the female, so basically no nutrients are being transferred into the follicle. Uh, so it's not really 
um, going to cost the female anything uh, during this process. Uh, you know, it's not it's not taxing. Uh, vitalogenesis is the second part of the female cycle, and basically at this point, the follicles increase in size, um, and the female uh, yolk begins to be deposited within them. Um, this stage uh, will not occur if the female does not have sufficient reserves uh, in order to, uh, you know, to go through the stage. So that's sort of the, the thing. It's like, okay, you want to make sure that your females are fed. Almost you want them, dare I say, a little bit overweight. Um, a little bit. He goes into, yeah. yeah, he goes into detail about, like, where that, you know, there's a certain cutoff um, when it comes to uh, the weight versus, you know, uh, the clutch. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think he goes into detail where he talks about vipers, and I know he did that study with the uh, the snake keeper with ball pythons, which yeah. is a pretty interesting uh, paper that he did. Uh, that was his thesis, I believe. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, so basically the benefits must weigh, outweigh the cost. Um, so once she enters this stage, um, the female will pretty much, you're pretty much going, she's going to go the full course of it because why would she go through all, expending all that energy if uh, she's not going to produce a clutch? So right. providing everything else is in line, you pretty much when they get to that stage, um, you're going to uh, have some success, hopefully. Uh, right. Uh, so the, the you know the the two things to be thinking about as far as the female goes. Um, we talked about introductions. Um, I don't know uh, how often. Uh, I mean, Owen, I don't know. You're you basically. I don't. I can't remember if you said that you leave your pairs together. Is that how you go? It's it's one of those. I'll leave the boys. I'll leave them together. But I will separate so that, you know, and offer food to the boy and the girls. We're talking about, like, after we bring everybody up, right? Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about, you know, during your cool, like, when your introductions are happening. So, basically, you're introducing when it's cooled down, right? Yeah, yeah, I introduce when it's cooled down. But, you know, I'll leave them together. But then we start warming up. That's when I start shifting things around. Like, if I have a male that's going to multiple females, that's when he'll start seeing his second or his you know, his other girl. So um, normally if I have a boy that's going to multiple females, he does the introduction and he does the the cool down with the female I really want him to breed with. And then uh, when we start doing the warming up, that's when he goes with the female that I really, that I kind of want him to breed with, the, the second female. So I really want him to get this one so he's in there longer and has and stays with that girl for more time, and then the other female I'll introduce when we do the warm up. Um, but I'll usually say if one, it's one male, one girl. They'll be in with each other, and then I will separate for probably two days. I'll pull them apart. I'll offer both food. Um, some eat, some don't. I've had girls eat while they were gravid. I've had boys eat while they were cruising for girls. I've had both refuse and both just be that gung-ho about breeding. So they'll be separate for a day or two, and then I'll ship them back in with each other. So, and that's where, you know, 
sometimes just pulling the mail away for that two days. You put him back in, and he's like, who is this? I've never seen her before. And he's all over her. So, and that's also when I can do the stupid little tricks of, like, uh, putting another male shed in there or even putting one of my other boys in there for, like, five seconds, letting them, like, sit there and then pull them out or um, just that kind of stuff where to get a male interested more. So, little things. Yeah, so uh, um, as you were saying this, I was sort of thinking in my head um, uh, of uh, what I would do. So, there are pairings where I'm doing multiple uh, females to one male. I have never gone more than three. I don't know if there's anybody that's done more than three, um, but yeah, uh, basically, I, I had Orion breed three females last year, and that was it. I mean, I I can't imagine him breeding more than that. So, or no, I'm sorry, that was two yeah, years ago. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, that's kind of like I, I I'm not trying to mass produce anything, so it's not like... I, I mean, I'm I don't sure know. I, I think ball python... Yeah, I think ball python breeding is probably more geared towards you're trying to get it. as much genetics in a season and produce some things that that really don't exist type of thing, so they you're trying male to put a rat. male... Yeah. Yeah, male over a bunch of females, but uh, I don't know. I think carpet python breeding is a, a little bit different. I, I'm sure... I don't think it's impossible that it can't be done, and it's not something mm-hmm. that I would be against. It's just not something that I've done or I've heard of. So right. uh, I think three would probably be the max. Um, so basically what I do as far as uh, the male, um, so if I have a male, like I said, if I have a male that I'm putting with uh, a female, and that pairing is kind of locked in, uh, and he's not going with anybody else, I'll put them together, and I kind of just let them do their thing. Um, I don't really bother them. I'm kind of hands-off approach that way. Um, yeah, there's no, no point in if, messing with them. Just let them be. Yeah, if I have a uh, um, a male that I'm putting to multiple females, um, what I usually do is I will put that male uh, with the female that I that I most want, like you said, um, and uh, basically I leave them together until I see a lock. Uh, once I see a lock, and uh, typically one of the things that I've noticed is is that when they're no longer interested in each other, which means the male will be over on this side, the female will be on that side, and not really laying together or anything like that. I typically pull the male. Uh, I give him maybe two, three days uh, in his own um, cage um, by himself, uh, let him rest up, and then I'll put him with that other female. Uh, and then I just repeat the process. Um, once I see a lock, pull him out two, three days, I put them back. Um, in the very beginning, I did feed males when that would go on, but now, I, like I said, I, I don't feed um, at all through that whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not eating. Um, that's that's pretty much 
what I do as far as the males. Um, I don't know. I, I, I sort of, I, I, I keep track of locks, um, kind of look at that. I guess the next topic would be if you put the male with the female uh, and you're not seeing any action, what can you do? I'm uh, glad you asked. All right. Well, so. Hold on. The first thing right. I would say is the most important thing, which you may say this, and I may have cut you right. off, but I know, make sure that you have a male and a female. <laughs> uh, that's the most oh, important God. thing. Uh, I've been on the... End of yeah, I've been on the end of both of those. So I put pairs together, thinking they were two. Uh, they were two, a male and a female. They turned out to be two males, and that was quite exciting. And I've oh, yeah. also seen where um, I put a pair together, and they were both females. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, there's there's that moment when you put the animals together, and there's usually a video every year. Is this combat? You're going to know what combat is when you see it. We've all described it. You've all heard about it. You've all seen videos of combat in the wild. When combat happens, it's not gentle. Um, And it happens very swift. And it's like, uh, it's a lot of thudding. It's a lot of throwing around the cages. So, you know, you'll know when you see combat. The only time I think you would be confused is when you have a jag try to do combat that's just adorable so um and also sad the <laughs> but you're exactly poor correct it, poor little bastard it's it, you're exactly correct and if you have if you are concerned or you have doubts about one of your animals if you have a proven male let him be the judge for you um because at a certain point any proven male will not tolerate any other male in his cage during breeding season. So uh, if you are on the fence about, or you have one of those tweeners, put him in with a proven male. If, he, if combat doesn't start, you, you pretty good chance you got a girl there. So, but that of course is not a sure thing either. Um, but what I would say is uh, if that is, if you're definitely sure you have um, the, uh, if you're very sure that you have a boy and a girl, and you're still getting no action, there are some tricks and tips that you can do. And a lot of them are simple things to prove that you are the smarter animal in the room. And sometimes that's hard, too. Uh, The best thing I do is my trick with the shed skins. One of my males will shed. I will take his skin, um, if he peed on it, even better, and you shove it into a squirt bottle with water. And you spray that in the cage of every other male beside from him. And they get the smell of a rival male in the area. And sometimes it's all you need to do to get a boy to want to breed with a female. Because there's another male in the area, and he's going to do this before she, before he does. And it's funny because when you spray a certain spot and then put the, the other male back in the cage, it, it, they, they, go, they go right over to it. It's almost like and they flick their tongue on the spot, and they just kind of stare at it for like five minutes. So you can tell they're trying to process stuff. So that works. That one I like. I also take other ripped-up sheds, and I'll throw them in other animals' cages. That works, too. Uh, you can initiate combat where you put another male into the cage of a pair that you want to breed, and when combat starts, you pull, you hook and pull the male that you don't want to breed out of the cage. 
now the other boy is like, I am the victor, and you might get a pair a lot that way. So there are a lot of different methods on a lot of different things to do. Another thing you might do is just uh, pull them apart and offer food. Uh, sometimes after a girl eats, she's more receptive to a male. So, and give them a few days away from each other. Sometimes that separation and then reintroduction does it. So there are multiple ways yeah. to skin that cat. Yeah, basically my go-to is combat. Um, I enjoy the combat, too. It's the best thing to do. Uh, you know, if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that you're going to be in the room um, and that you're not leaving the room uh, because it can get nasty. Um, they can, you know, they have been known to bite each other and, and, and whatnot. Um, basically, I think um, what I would do is just like you said, Owen, uh, I'd put the male in with the other male. Um, typically, I would try to use a male that I'm not breeding that year uh, so that uh, he doesn't think that uh, <laughs> he's the loser, I guess. I don't know if that matters or well, it doesn't. Well, if you, but, do, it, uh, if you that, do it properly and you do it fast enough, you can initiate combat. And when you hook the male that you don't want to breed with that female out and throw him in a cage with another girl, they both think they won. And then so it's like, they, again, you're smarter than them, okay? They're really easy to trick. So Yeah. Uh, you yeah they, you they, their brain is the size of a pea. So. <laughs> yeah, if she's outsmarting you, you should get out of snakes and seek medical help. So, um, yeah, yeah, not that hard. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, I guess the easiest way I, I've done it a couple of times, but typically, um, keeping males small, uh, I call it keeping them, keeping them hungry and horny. Uh, that kind of just, <laughs> I've never really had. Uh, yeah. One of the yep. things that I look for, and again, um, Typically, people don't look for this when they're buying a snake, is that I look for aggressiveness. Um, I look yeah. for those males that when you go in their tub and they're little and you're picking them out, I'm looking for the one that's effed up and just thinks that it's it's like, you know... Uh, Taipan, you know, yeah, bite everything. It's, yeah. just, it's just, just biting, 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 biting. Typically, what I've found is, is that 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 goes away, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, but they have a good feeding response, which means that, you know, they're going to eat for you. They're going to put on the size and they're going to get the job done. Uh, mm-hmm. I have never had a male following those, um, things that, uh, has not produced for me. So, you know, or tried to get the job done, uh, as far as, you know, locking up with the feet. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I keep them small. When I say small, you know, my males maybe, I don't know, I, I'm just taking a guess, eight, 900 grams maybe, tops. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're, they're, my males are small. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I, you know, well, that's kind of, it, kind of my thinking there. Sometimes the younger boys are just the better breeders. And, that, and having small males, I've had tiny boys breed with some of the biggest girls and you're like, Merit, whatever, get it done. So it's like, don't ever count a boy out just because of his size. Like I said, the worst thing that could ever happen is that he gets chased out of the cage and is terrified. And then, you know what? He settles once you put him into his own cage. 
And sometimes if yeah. he's a jag, you got to wait for him to really calm down. But um, yeah. <laughs> breeding jags is the funniest thing. Anyway, so it's, it's the there there are multiple ways to do this. And, and again, it, just because it, a male doesn't work out with this pair doesn't mean he's not going to work out in this pair. So don't ever right. count them out just because of size or weight or anything like or age. I mean, just you know, give him a shot, see what he does. I'm not saying grab a hatchling and throw him in with your biggest girl. That's stupid. But you know, if right. you've got a you've got near two year old, freaking give him a shot. So it might work out. Yeah. And, and um, of course, we're saying this, and we're not talking about animals where sometimes males and females will eat each other. For those, you want everybody to be close to the same size because that can lead to poor results. Well, now you're talking about other species like olives and carpet pythons that I know of. That I know don't eat each other. You have to add that to sleep before somebody (laughs) appears and says, my IJ ate my jungle. And we're like, well, shit. So, yeah. As far as we know, uh, I assume there have probably been one or two, maybe in Australia, maybe in Europe, where um, female carpet python ate a boy or something like that, or somebody was trying to crossbreed this with that, and the, the, you know, I tried breeding my blackhead to my IJ, and the blackhead ate the IJ, duh. So, um, but when it comes to certain other species, like king snakes, olives, things like that, they will eat each other, so... I'll let you know how that goes. Yeah. That's truly going to be terrifying this year. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think that, uh, I don't know, maybe people take advantage of this, maybe they don't, is the uh, low-pressure systems and storms. And um, Oh, my God. I used to hate I used to hate the snow in the winter, um, but now I welcome it. Uh, yep. Simply because uh, a lot of snow, means a lot of snake breeding. Yes. Um, I find that uh, typically you're going to see a lot of locks and a lot of action going on during those things. So if I do have a male that's separated out and it is, you know, if if I would leave them separated for two to three days and I see that I'm paying attention to the weather, that's one thing that I do do every day uh, during Mm -hmm. the breeding season. Um, as I'm watching that, and if I see that, you know, some kind of front is coming through, I will throw that male in with that female, uh, and usually I always see locks, uh, you know, during that during that time. Um, yes, definitely. If storms are your friends, if you are, if, 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 if you, before you go to work, if you hear that there's a storm coming and it's going to start snowing, over the next day or two, put them together. Get them together. If they're apart, cancel it. If you're going to pull them apart, don't do it. Um, get them together because the lead-up, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's snowing. When I get home, I'll put them together. Now, you want the lead-up to the storm, then the storm, and then after the storm. You want them all to be together when that happens. Yeah. Because the pressure, uh, the pressure changes for the lead-up, then during the storm, and then after the storm is kind of what triggers all that stuff. So, we're talking very large rainstorms, very big snowstorms, um, even small ones. Even those days where it's just like the storm is passing through or is building up, have them together for that stuff. I mean, 
it, it you'd be surprised at how much that helps uh, get the breeding across. Yeah, just a change in the pressure. Um, mm-hmm. As much as uh, our rooms are what they are, and, you know, even though, again, if you're thinking about your room, and I've heard people say, well, I don't drop temps, I don't do this, I don't do that, but you really don't know what your room is doing. So your room could be doing more than what you think. And, um, yeah. you know, you, you think your room is not dropping in temp, but I guarantee you that if at least where we are, uh, that, you know, if you're turning the heat off at night, your room is dropping in temp. <laughs> it's yep. just, even if you have, uh, like, even if you were, um, if you had the uh, ambient room approach, um, yeah. I still think that your room is dropping at night. It has to. It's just, I mean, it gets cold here, you know. Yeah. So I, I can't believe that a room with no heat would not drop just from the mere having sense. And I mean, you can have, like what I have, I have a partially submerged, my entire snake room is underground for the most part. I have the side room that isn't, so it's mostly underground. And even that would lose temperature in the nighttime if I shut off everything. Because there's no possible way I can get it to the point where it would be that air sealed, that airtight, that you know, unable to leak everything. We're talking, you know, laboratory-grade kind of stuff for that shit to happen. But yeah. so it will drop in temperature. Um, uh, that's 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 a given. So, and again, with the whole I don't drop temps and stuff like that, well, maybe where you live, the temperatures don't really need to be dropped for breeding of carpet pythons. Maybe it's something else that triggers them. Like we said earlier, there are multiple triggers for breeding your snakes. So, uh, yeah, you just got to find out I which one works best for you in your area. That you want to look at, and one thing that might help is, you know, uh, for one, talking to a lot of people from Australia, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, or for wherever your snake is from. But obviously, carpets are from Australia. This is um, really a Python radio. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, another thing is is that uh, simple on your phone, you you can you get a weather app. Um, basically, you can add. Uh, cities and 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 you can just kind of figure out where the species that you're you know that you're working with whether it's uh, you know uh, top of Australia or Sydney or you know over on the on the west coast wherever it is uh, you know you purse whatever um, you can kind of plug that into your phone and get an idea of what the temperatures are doing <clears throat> in that area mm-hmm. um, so you can see and get a feel for uh, that, that. That's how I kind of thought, came to the conclusion that carpets kind of are a seasonal type of uh, probably all Australian species kind of they go through that same thing um, mm-hmm. where the the the, the cool down uh, really affects them. I mean, if you look at something like uh, bread lie. Um, I'm sure inlands follow the same suit. Basically, though, with bread lie, they're living in the desert. It's getting cold there at night, which yeah. is why, uh, from talking with Nick, and, you know, you've said the same thing, Owen, is that, you know, they have to get a little bit colder in order to mm-hmm. really get them going. Uh, so you're talking, like, in the 50s, you know, uh, which yeah. is 
Some people oh, say yeah. that again, that's not necessary, but I don't know. Nick's been pretty hey. successful with them, and exactly, I'd go with the people who have been having continuous success year after year, and that would just be Nick. And we've discussed this, Nick and I, and it's like. I kind of here's the thing is if I shoot for them dropping down close to 60 degrees, um, there'll be a day or two where they'll probably drop below 60, just given that you know it's that cold outside, and it kind of overpowers the heating system and that thing, so they'll drop below right. that. But as long as they creep close to 80 something degrees during the daytime, the brettles are going to be fine. They're indestructible. So right. You know, but that's important. If I dropped them down to 50 and kept them there, you know, I don't even think a brettle could enjoy that stuff. So there's various things you can do that way. So, but I would right. definitely say that. It's why I pull the brettles out of the room because then they can uh, be dedicated to what they needed to need to be have done to succeed. So, um, yeah. So if you I, at some point, I hope to. Uh, I did. I looked these up to try to get these numbers for you guys. So just in case you have access to an ultrasound, um, mm. looking at some of the people that have bred carpets using an ultrasound, um, this is the uh, size follicles uh, that 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 have been shown. So during the cooling season, the cool down, you're looking at the follicles measuring about five to six millimeters. Um, when males become interested, uh, basically they've grown to 18 to 20 millimeters. And typically when the female ovulates, you're looking at about 25 millimeters. Um, I'm not really, uh, I really haven't had success with palpating females. If you don't have an ultrasound to feel if their follicles are growing, I don't know if you I do never that, have, Owen. You know, I, yeah, I, I, you know. I can never, I always miss the of swells and things like that. Like, I never pegged them correctly. So, um, but it's almost like the second, we, we've spoken about this before, I, I miss the of swells, but what I look for to catch when they're gravid is not their sides or their girth, it's the belly scales. Yeah. It's, it's when um, the belly scales kind of hop out to make that square, that's what I look for, but I can never palpate follicles or, you know, no look at a girl and go, ah, she's ovulation swelling. I, I can never, I always seem to miss it or not do it correctly or imagine it's just like poop in there that I'm feeling. So, I, I don't know. So, uh, no, I should get an ultrasound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Um, yeah. So, coming up, like I said at the beginning, uh, when we were talking about temperatures, basically at this point, we're back into uh, normal temperatures, and um, what led me to do the following was um, the one year I wasn't noticing anything from the females. Uh, I was worried about that that uh, that they, they weren't going to go, and that... Um, I don't know. For some reason, I just I I think we had talked to Ben that year and about the female and and having enough food in her and all that stuff had played into my decision. So I had fed them uh, the females uh, small rats, 
Um, if mm-hmm. I wasn't going to use small rats, uh, I've used African soft furs. Uh, but basically a smaller meal, fed the female, and immediately the female kind of turned on. Um, she sort of, uh, I saw some more locks, and probably within a couple weeks, I saw the ovulation. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's needed or not needed, but that is part of my uh, process when when breeding carpets. So basically when the temperatures are back up to normal, uh, the males, uh, I do separate, I do feed the males. Um, I'll give them a meal just because they pretty much look like uh, they're on death's door at this point because Mm-hmm. Uh, breeding season is stressful for animals. I mean, oh my god, uh, that's that's something that um, I uh, we didn't really talk about too much. But uh, really, at the beginning of the season, you really should look at the health of your animals. For instance, if you have a, 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 a an animal that has recently had an RI, or uh, maybe uh, just it's is not eating good, or whatever the case may be. I would not recommend breeding that animal simply because yeah. the stress of breeding that uh, that happens during the season. You could kill uh, it. It's just, yeah, it's just very taxing Silly. on the animal. So, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, so they're basically warmed up. They're looking at the same temperatures. Uh, at that point, the male is kind of, I, I leave them together until yeah. I know the female is gravid. Um I have seen ovulation. Um, mm-hmm. I have been fooled by a pre-ovulation <laughs> shed, uh, yes. where I thought it was a pre-lay shed. Uh, yes. and that's something that can be and tricky. Pull, and then you pull the uh, boy. Yeah, and then you, you shouldn't have been yeah. pulled yet. Yeah. So um, that that that's definitely happened to me. Um, so I think what's happening is I've I've, I've talked to Nick about this. But basically, you know, the female is swelling up from the ovulation, and I don't really keep them that huge, so maybe that's forcing those uh, females to go into a shed. Um, I'm not really sure, but uh, I don't... If if I see a shed, I'm not really uh, looking at it as uh, that's the uh, pre-lay shed. Um, And I usually see ovulation soon after that uh soon after that that warm up and feeding uh maybe two meals max uh i've i've fed them some of them one some of them two uh but once i think you were basically let's see so is your female gravid here's a couple ways i guess you could uh look one usually uh a female basking uh, mm-hmm. So at this point, um, I've upped the uh, the basking spot. I think I usually have been doing maybe 87 degrees, 88 degrees, something in that area. Um, ambient temp still the same in the 80s, high 70s, mm-hmm. somewhere in that area. But uh, for females, the basking temp, I up it a bit. I don't know if that's necessary or not, but I don't do that till after she is ovulated. Uh, listening to some of the old reptile radio episodes, uh, they felt that if you put that heat on, uh, sometimes that could lead to slugs. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know about not that true. One. Yeah. But I give the gradient, so if the female wants to get 
uh, you know, heat, she can get the heat. If not, she can get cool. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, so if you see her basking, uh, I have not seen my females ever bask belly up, but I don't have above heat. I have under the, under the, the, the tub or heat. So that could be why. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you, I you've the, experienced. I have the rating, yeah, I have the rating heat panels, but, uh, the way I have them stacked is the panel for the cage that's below them is right underneath the panel that they have. So it's kind of like bottom heat and top heat, but I'll still see it because she'll like, she'll go into her hide box and invert in the hide box because she wanted to be a little bit cooler in there, but it was too cool. So I've caught them a few times and the inversion is sometimes, it depends on the girl. Sometimes the only thing that is right side up is their like, head and then the rest of them is flipped up uh other times i've had some females that just sit a little cockeyed and what's funny is i had one carpet that had a perch in her cage like this big wooden branch that i adhered into their cage and she would never leave that branch she would always sit on top of the branch except when she was gravid she was so i guess bottom heavier was weird or was awkward for her so she actually came down off the branch and i'm like aha something's going on there, you're not where you're supposed to be. So then when she laid her eggs, she went right back up on the branch. So um, sometimes it's little subtle things like that. But uh, after a while, you'll be able to feel them uh, when the snake runs through your hands. It's like bump, 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 bump. Uh, But then also we talked about the, the belly scales will bump out into this like square almost. And they'll be just thick and heavy from like halfway down their body body all the way down to the tip of the tail. So, uh, and even then sometimes it's like, I have you guys come over and I'm like, Eric, is this thing grab it? I'm on the fence about it. And you're like, Jesus Christ, it ain't a football. And you know, it's like, it's extremely obvious to somebody else coming in. So sometimes that's something yeah. else you need. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that's hard to describe, but uh, a yeah. female definitely has a certain look to her. And sometimes if you're, it's kind of like, I kind of equate it to this. It's like if somebody, if you if you have somebody that loses weight or gains weight, um, mm. and you see them every day, uh, you might not notice it as much as if somebody hasn't seen you in in, in months. You know, you may, uh, you know, or like when uh, a puppy, you have a puppy, puppy Mm. every day, and you don't notice it growing. And then when somebody comes over and hasn't seen it, they haven't seen the puppy a month, all of a sudden they're like, good Lord, that dog got huge, you know. So uh, I equate it to to something along the lines of that. So I've I've questioned my females. Uh, they're gravid or they're not gravid. You guys have come over mm-hmm. and basically said, "Are you crazy? She's gravid." <laughs> and, yeah, uh, she's massive. You know, yeah. Vice versa. Uh, scale separation is a big one. Um, I yeah. noticed with uh, maybe because of being smaller females. I, I'm not really sure, but I've noticed that uh, I see that a lot. Um, and, you know, with ovulation, you're looking at basically 8 to 24 hours that she ovulates and that and it's gone. A lot of people will miss it, and they won't see when mm-hmm. she's ovulated. 
Um, until I start seeing those signs, the male is still in there. Once I start getting a feed, I'm, the more and more you do it, the more and more you kind of know, like, okay, she's so grab it, then you basically pull the male, and he's out of the process. And basically from that point forward, it's just focusing on the female. Now, at this point um, is when you would introduce a nest box. Now, mm-hmm. because I keep I keep my carpets in racks and not really, you know, those big racks, basically um, I use the whole tub as the nest box. Uh, basically, I get a whole bunch of sphagnum moss, throw it in the tub. Uh, <laughs> I let the female pick where she wants to go. Um, you know, if she wants to, to coil on the heat, she can coil on the heat. She wants to coil away from the heat, she coils away from the heat. Um, and, and at that point, I'm just looking for a pre-lay shed and, then I, you know, just waiting for her to lay the eggs. Uh, uh, temperatures are my normal temperatures. I don't do anything with that. Uh, some people, I have done a nest box. Uh, I think the first year I bred, uh, because I was doing artific- artificial incubation and I was using caging at that time. Um, so I just got a 15-quart, and this was for IJs, a 15-quart Rubbermaid, popped a hole in the top. Um, for that female, I used um, shredded up paper. The thing that I didn't like about shredded up paper, especially if, if you're going to do maternal incubation, is that the paper went moldy uh, at the very mm-hmm. end. Uh, for my one, I had three clutches that year. All three were uh, maternal incubated. Well, two were maternal incubated. One started maternal incubated, uh, then turned into artificial incubation. Uh, but the second one, the female, uh, I, I couldn't really get a feel for what was going on inside the clutch, but a couple of the eggs, that were moldy uh, because of the paper and went bad. Surprisingly, right. though, the rest of the clutch uh, stayed intact. So <clears throat> I sort of uh, geared away from from that and went to the uh, to the sphagnum moss because that doesn't mold. So that's kind of my thinking behind that. So it's a great what do you do for a box? Well, for for nest box, I kind of try to do what you did. I usually just throw a bunch of moss underneath their hides, and I'm actually redoing my hides because you know how Matt does his hide boxes where it's the tough bin um, with the hole drilled in the little lid of the bin? Um, Uh Because what I've been doing is taking the bin and then cutting a hole and then, like, flipping it on its top and not having a lid at all. Well, the carpet sit on yeah. top of it, and it bends, and it rips, and it breaks. So we're adjusting. So what I want to do is, this year, shove moss in the hide boxes when it comes time for that. Is just take their own hide box, something they're already comfortable with, and just throw moss in it. So that is what we'll do with there. Um, I've never done maternal incubation, uh, as you know. Um, and when it comes to... My guys, I've seen them do some crazy shit with their eggs, like lay them in the hide boxes, lay them on top of the hide boxes, lay them underneath the shelf, on top of the shelf, lay them in a corner, lay them on front, spread them all around. Uh, 
I'd one put them almost in the water bowl, really, really close. Um, so it's like it can kind of happen anywhere. Uh, and you're right about the paper. Even if they lay the clutch on top of paper, even if you pull the paper off as much as you can, sometimes those remnants of newspaper during the incubation process do get moldy. So you got to watch out for that. Um, a lot of times I will walk in my room, and if I have a girl that I know is going, like, should be laying soon, if I don't see her, if she's underneath her paper or if the hive box is shoved all the way up front and she's behind it, that usually means we're, we're golden, we're good. You know, I'll pull the paper aside and she'll have them all coiled up. So you kind of got to watch for that stuff too. And then I usually just set them up in the incubator uh, uh, in a classic. Uh, I do a non, they don't sit in the substrate. They get to dry is what they call it. And uh, that's what I use for my incubator. So. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Um, once the prelay shed comes, um, at that point, my the whole spot is ready for her to lay wherever she chooses yep. to lay. Um, and I just look. I call it. There's. So what I've noticed from watching my females is usually the day before they lay mm-hmm. um, they get all twisted up. Oh, um, they're, they're, oh, they're, they're, they're not happy. And they're, they usually wreck their cages. Like the papers are all crinkled up. The high box is over there. I mean, they'll just destroy the cage. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but uh, what mm-hmm. I see a Basically, because at that point I've taken everything out of the cage, oh, yeah, uh, and my my cage is basically a big nest box. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. Um, but what I what I do right. look, yeah. So what I do look for is, um, again, she prelay the prelay shed. You're looking at what would you say two three weeks? Basically, is what you would what I would say is yes. when she's yeah. gonna lay. So come that third week. Uh, I'm looking at the female every day, and typically what I see is that I see I will see her coiled, um, you know, and she's normal, you know, a normal coiled snake, uh, nothing nothing crazy. Maybe I haven't experienced belly basking up, but, you know, something like that, even that would still be in your typical coiled position. Uh, but right. the day before they lay... They get all kinds of contorted, twisted like a pretzel. Mm. I, I, I've taken pictures of it, and I think it's over on my Facebook page. Um, but uh, it's just really crazy. And typically, once that happens, the next day I have eggs. Um, yeah. So I look for that crazy thing, and then I know that, you know, okay, get ready tomorrow because tomorrow I'm going to have uh, gonna have eggs on the ground. Um there is a certain look that I see with females where when you see them coiled, opposed to when they're coiled around eggs. Um, yes. It's hard to explain, to put into words, but there's definitely a different look to it. Um, and as soon as I see that, I know, okay, we're, we're in business. So... Um, what do I do at that point? So if I'm doing... Uh, maternal incubation, which uh, I've done quite a number of times, um, but I didn't at all last year. 
I will leave um I'll leave that female alone. I, I really don't do anything. Uh, I, I the, the first year I did it, um, I would move the tub under the hot spot. The female would move it. Uh, you know, this was prior to her length. Um, mm-hmm. With the with the i with the IJ female uh, that that I did maternal incubation with, um, she did not leave her eggs that I observed. Um, but when I did, I started to do poison ivy's clutch maternal incubation. But what I noticed is that three days into it, she had left the egg. And I'm glad that she did because what had happened is she had developed a respiratory infection. Um, and, uh, you know, if she would have, if I would have not been paying attention and allowed her to maternally incubate those eggs, um, mm-hmm. she probably would have perished. Uh, and that would not have been good. Uh, so that's something you really have to watch, make sure that, uh, you know, uh, because I'm telling you what, maternal incubation really takes a lot out of the female, really, really is very taxing on the female uh, for those months that she's wrapped around the coil of egg. So, uh, yeah. Um, it's definitely cool to to experience, uh, and it's not hard to do. I know people are worried about humidity and temperature mm-hmm. and all this. Uh, I don't just keep it how you keep the cage. Let the female figure it out. They've been doing it for yeah. millions of years. They're pros. Um, She's much better than it than it than you are. So um, yes, yeah. Uh, I think you know in the complete carpet. Nick has done studies on it. You know where temperature fluctuation, the the temperature of the uh, inside the clutch of eggs, uh, mm-hmm. inside mom's coils is basically spiking and dropping and spiking and dropping. And um, with my diamond cross female that I maternal maternally incubated with, what I did notice is that she would come out and bask. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it would only be half her body. Sometimes she would come out and bask her whole body, and then she'd go back to uh, uh, to the eggs. But uh, she always returned to the eggs. Uh, so it's kind of hard to tell, you know, but uh, you definitely have to keep your eye on it. Uh, but if she does, if the female does leave the eggs, I would check it out and see what's going on. Um, you know, sometimes if you see them basking under the light or under the heat panel or whatever it is that you have, uh, then, you know, by all means, I would say that she's probably just basking so that she can bring her temperature up so she can bring the temperature of the eggs up. Um, I, I, for some reason, carpets are kind of like the one species to me that I've seen that are really good journal incubation. I know other pythons do it. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're not as good, but for some reason in captivity, they seem to be the species that uh, if you're going to try it, it's probably the the one to go with. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, um, if I do artificial incubation, um, mm. I really haven't had a problem with pulling females off of eggs. Uh, I know that that can be kind of tricky for, for some people and females can get aggressive and whatnot. Maybe it's because it's uh, carpet pythons <laughs> are not that I haven't had anything that's all that big that if I got bit, it's not going to be the end of the world. But really, yeah. uh, I, I've never really had an, uh, uh, an issue. I just sort of, uh, 
you know, grab this email and you just kind of unwrap. Uh, it's much easier if you have two people do it, but if you're doing it yourself, you just kind of unwrap her around the eggs. you got to be careful that, you know, you don't damage the eggs. Um, but uh, basically, if you do it quick enough and, and, and you know what you're doing, you've seen somebody do it, uh, you can get them off of there. Uh, yeah, and it's, um, so, I mean, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, she she's going to be very tired. I mean, you always look at your girl after she's laid eggs, and it's like, oh, my God, I've killed her because they're skinny, they're flat, they look tired. So a lot of times if you see the eggs early enough, you can pull her off no problem because she's not really going to be in the mood to fight you. So, uh, and you definitely yeah, want to clean. Been, I was going to say, yeah, it hasn't been an issue for me either. I mean, you know. I don't know if it's like you said because they're tired or whatever the case may be, but they're not really they're not they're not fighting me. So nah. and I mean the the other thing you want to do is a lot of people kinda some people kinda glance over this is that you wanna make sure you clean the cage very well uh after you you remove the eggs and also give mom a bath. Otherwise, uh She'll try to incubate whatever the hell she can get her whole, like, that smells like the eggs in the cage. I've had females ball up the paper and, like, try to incubate them. So you want to you you clean the cage, and then the best thing to do is get a, a dish rag that's wet with some warm water and some, uh, like, Dawn dish soap and just wipe down her entire body from, like, neck all the way down to tail and then put her back in, and usually once you do that, she's good. The funny thing is, is I did that a couple years ago, and then months later, the eggs hatched, and I took the shells out of the incubator and put them on top of their mother's cage, and I came back, and she was incubating the paper. She, like, had coiled up the paper and was trying to incubate the paper. So um, they don't freaking forget. (laughs) So... Uh, be mindful of where you put the eggs after the babies have hatched. So, but yes, that's, Great, that's yeah. one thing you kind of got to think about to do as well. And then you just set the eggs up and eat the bed. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically how I approach it as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, make sure mom's empty, wash her down, wash the tub down. Um, at yeah. that point, basically, you know, get her back, get her some, get her a meal into her, and 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 try to get her into recovery some, mode. Um, some females will eat that day if you offer. Most of yeah. my girls will like the second you're like, the second the eggs are away, and like you like you you put the eggs in the incubator, and then you thaw out a rodent. By the time the rodent thawed, you show that thing to the mom, and she's all over it. So I mean. Don't don't think okay now I have to leave her alone. Offer her the food if she takes it. That's one more step. And like you said too, check to make sure she's empty. Like that would be the right time to make sure everything is out of her, whether it be a stray egg or a slug or something. Make sure it's done at that point. Yeah, luckily I, I've had a situation where I've had retained eggs, and um, mm. luckily uh, for for me. Um, I was able to, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it was close enough to the vent to where I could, uh, palpate it out. Yeah, you palpate it uh, out, yeah. I did, the year 
I think a year prior to that, I had that caramel girl that had a retained edge. Oh, uh, yeah. Up that, yeah. You know, you, you palpated out. Um, luckily, in both circumstances, uh, seemed to be uh, be okay. Um, mm. You want to make sure you get that out. If you can't palpate yeah. it out, um, and I'm not saying if you feel uncomfortable about it, try it, uh, but you know, take her, take her to a vet, and yep. uh, you know they can do it. Uh, last so. year, um, my jungle female had she slugged out, I guess, because the move, but she had two massive slugs, like they were the size of like blackhead eggs, like they were huge, and they were gumming up everything else because she had like ten little slugs, and then these two massive ones. So we ended up having to go to the vet, and the vet uh, induced her and then also palpated out one of the really big eggs, and it came out. Uh, and then they kind of did an ultrasound, and they saw the other really big one. So they palpated it up to the vent, and then they actually took a syringe and drained it, and then she passed it. And then that mixed with the Pitocin to induce. By the time I drove home, she was in the bin as I'm driving home, firing out slugs. So by the time we got home, she was empty. So, you know, that stuff can happen fast. And if you remember, do you remember Venus's first year breeding? She was yep. so far beyond her due date. It was I think it was like almost a month beyond her due date. And I ended right. up having to take her to the vet and get her induced. Um, so that's totally an option, guys, and that totally works. It's uh and you know, the, the, just have a good reptile vet. If you're if you're kind of going into breeding, if this is your first year breeding and you don't have a reptile vet in your area, this would be the time to find one because anything can happen during breeding season. Um, sure, this is where things get dangerous, so it's good to have one. Yeah, this is definitely the most stressful thing that your animals will go through. Uh, so yeah. if they're on the if they're not healthy animals, you're going to have issues. Uh, you know, I I mean this is where I don't know. I mean if you're having a female that's consistently throwing slugs, or if you're having a female that's consistently egg bound. Um, that's where my thoughts with varied diet or, you know, mm-hmm. all those kind of things come into play. Is it necessary for them to survive? No. But is it overall better for them uh, in the long term and really bringing you to success, uh, consistent success? I don't know. You know, it's just a yeah. thought. I mean, they're no different than... I mean, it, it, basic biology, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, you put food in, you get you get that out. So, Good shit, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's just like a human being. I mean, if you want a human to be in the, I mean, you could survive off of Snickers bars for the rest of your life. Oh, that would be one hell of a good life, but a short one. Uh, I don't know how healthy you're going to be uh, and how well of a breeder you would be uh, or what kind of problems you would run into. Yeah. You know, you you might rethink it when you lose the first foot to diabetes. 
So then you might want to be like, maybe I shouldn't have just Snickers bars, but God, yeah. getting that foot would be uh, mm, Snickers. Anyway, yeah. um, you, you're exactly correct, and and there is no shame in sitting a female. I know everybody's like, well, she slugged out last year. We're going to give it another shot. You, you know, my thing is that if a female has a bad year where she slugs or is bound or something, she usually sits the following year because if you do back-to-backs like that, sometimes you have some issues and sometimes the issues pile in on themselves and then you have a a big deal. Now, if she just has a clutch of slugs but she's completely healthy, you can go ahead and do that because you can go ahead and breed her the following year because sometimes females just don't go or it was the male's fault or if it's their first season, you have a high slug count, but if it's an older girl that has produced numerous years for you and then all of a sudden has one year where it's a bunch of slugs and maybe like two or three infertiles or two and three fertile ones, you may be gearing, nearing the end of that female's productive life as far as a breeder. And also you might just want to give her a year or two off. It, there's, there's no harm in that, none at all. And I'd much rather give one of my girls a year off than to push them and end up killing them. So, uh, yeah. Use your judgment. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I typically do two years on, one year off. I usually um, do. I, uh, usually, if I have a female and I breed her for two two years back to back, um, that if I give her off and then that, that what would be the fourth year, um, so she'd be off the third year. That fourth year, usually she's with a different male. Uh, yeah. Unless she hasn't produced from a male that I have her, you know, lined up with, um, then I may try it again. Um, I don't know. There's been some thinking about, and as far as, uh, you know, how many seasons can they go? Um some people breed every year and just keep pumping eggs out of that female year after year. Now, uh, will that female live to be 20, 25 years old? I don't know. You know, Probably not. But to, probably to 10, <laughs> 12. Yeah, probably. Um, but um, it, it's funny because uh, my one female is in 07, and she bred four years in a row, and she did not breed in 2015 partially because of the move and partially because I wanted to give her the year off because she had uh, 32 eggs but 10, uh, 12 of them were slugs so I gave her the year off last year I didn't want to breed her at all and then partially the move and probably messed up everything I'm going to probably try breeding her this year but I'm not sure what boy to put her with so right now, I'm actually even on the fence about breeding her at all because it's like, hey, if I don't have a boy that's worth it, why am I going to put her through it? So, and this would have been, and, and she did four years in a row, and she had babies for all four years and all fantastic babies. But, you know, if I don't have the male that I want or if it's not worth it, then I'm just going to let her be. So sometimes that year off helps a ton where – they come back the year later, the year after, larger clutch, higher fertility rate, 
bigger babies. So, you know, I'd rather skip a year or two and then when I can use her again to help me, use her again and have her be healthy and ready to roll. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Pace yourself. There was a question earlier. Uh, I, I think it was from Steve, but um, he was basically saying that um, he was asking about males as far as giving a break from breeding. Hmm. Um, the, uh, boys, boys don't ever seem to want a break. I bred... I've bred males five years in a row with no issues. Yes. I don't think that it's as taxing on the males as it is on oh. females. So, and it's funny because I gave, I gave my I gave my male Talon. This is probably be his second year where he didn't have a girl lined up for him, and he starts losing his freaking mind. You know, he's cruising, he's going in front, he's off food, he's all over the place. It's like, you know. I've never seen a male. Uh, I've never seen a female complain with a year off. But the males, if you don't give a male a female, and it's he's ready to roll, he'll he's all over the cage, he's tweaking out. So it's uh, I've never had a male not breed a year uh, if I if I could use him. Um, so yeah, I don't ever see any issue with giving them years off. I don't think it really helps yeah, we- there sperm retention or anything like that. So, Yeah, I think uh, we have mentioned some of the signs for females being ready to reproduce, but real quick, I wanted to throw in there the males. Um, you bring up the cruising. Um, yep, just, you got you, you're going to walk into your room right around this, you know, when you know that the carpets are on, you're going to see your <laughs> males cruising the tub or the cage like crazy. Um, yeah, if you, you see your males non-stop. Belly. On your, yeah. Yeah. If you're looking into the cage, you see you see his belly and his head, and he's just kind of waving back and forth. That's cruising or an attempt to cruise. Um, if the paper has kind of been all cycloned into the middle of the cage, because that's how he's been spinning, yeah, yeah he's cruising. So yes, they just go, oh my god. Yeah. And I imagine um, because if we're in the wild, they'd be looking for a girl. So they have to cover yeah. her like great distances to find her. So, yes. Yeah, and he smells all those females and, you know, in your room and can't get to them. So, he's trying he to figure, figure out, out where they are. <laughs> yeah. I know they're here, damn it, but I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> Which from a male's perspective, that can be quite torturous. That's um, annoying. But That's uh evil. yeah. Another thing uh that uh it's time to breed is that a male will go off of fee. Oh, excuse mm-hmm. me, we'll go off a of feed. Um, yep. And usually around this time of year, you're going to see somebody post up, my carpet python won't eat. Um, it won't oh. eat because it's probably breeding season and it wants yeah. to breed. So that's, they'll that's usually go off feed. I mean, yeah. if you're worried about your boy not being ready, if he goes off food in this time of year, he's kind of telling you he's ready to roll. So Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, uh, as far as, uh, you know, I guess real quick, just eggs, egg boxes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's some fancy stuff out there. You suspend it above water. Some people use those things where you have the sponges and 
Uh, right. Basically, what I use is I just get perlite. I mix it together yeah. with uh, uh, water. I make it real, real wet because I put that light diffuser uh, over top of it, and then I put the eggs on top of that. It's basically real simple. Um, one trick that I did learn uh, just by accident, and that mm. I will keep repeating is that I want a clear lid on the top yes. of my egg box. Yes. Uh, yes. I have used both clear lids and, like, uh, you can't see through the lid. Uh, and the problem is is that when I want to see the eggs uh, with a clear lid, you can kind of peek in and see what's going on without having to open the box mm-hmm. uh, or open in the door uh, to the incubator, which is which is cool. With the one that's covered, if you want to look at the eggs, you kind of have to take the, the lid off. So, um, although it's good to get the uh, the air circulating in there, um, I really, I don't know. I I, I use uh, two holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have used tubs where they've had holes in it, but uh, basically, I put uh, two holes, one on each side, and just kind of go f- go from there. Uh, I keep the the incubator running at uh, 88 degrees. Yep. And uh, from there, it's just a waiting game. Uh, at yep. that point, the females are back on feed. The males are back on feed. Uh, you know, and and just thinking about uh, you know what's going to happen for the next season. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, if I know that female's not, uh, you know going to breed that following season. I don't really like, I'm not in any kind of rush to get them uh, back up to size. I kind of let them take their time and, and whatnot. But if it's a female that I know that, you know, I want to breed the following year, uh, you know, coming out of the breeding season, I might give her an extra meal or two, uh, maybe something bigger in size, something like that. Um, yeah. It's, it's just it, a way and, and, it is, and I know you were talking about substrate in the in the egg box with perlite. You know, I think the I think the mix is like one part perlite, two parts water, and you know, for your first season, yes, you sit there with a measuring cup and you measure it out and you do it three times and you throw out two batches because it wasn't wet enough. Around your fifth or sixth clutch, make it the consistency of wet sand. You're done. You're good. Yeah. You're fine. Set it up. Yeah. Don't touch it. So. You know, you, you'll get used to it more. Also, your first couple clutches, you can go buy the, like, expensive farm-grown vermiculite for your egg boxes when the perlite down the street at the Lowe's works out great. So it, <laughs> you live and you learn, and then, you know, you move forward and you find all the shortcuts. So, but, yeah, you put the eggs in, uh, clear boxes, and you know you're getting there when the eggs start to dent really good. What yep. I found is when there's condensation on the top of the box, you are a day or two away. When you're looking in the lid and you see condensation build up, that that means we're ready to roll because the eggs are starting to give off their own heat as the babies get ready to hatch. And then yeah. that's it. I mean, it's fun, It's funnier with monitor eggs. Because I mean, the condensation that they build up—it's like that. It's like it's raining in that box before baby <laughs> monitors hatch. It's ridiculous. 
So baby carpets, a little bit of condensation, uh, to the point where you like go to look in on your eggs and you have to wipe off the top of the box to see them. That means you're, right. you, again, days away. Then you get the babies to hatch. And, of course, we've talked about to cut or not to cut. And I think we're all in agreement that once you start seeing several ones pip, uh, I slice my eggs open. I do not take a chainsaw to them like some re-kick breeders I know. I also don't rip the baby out of the egg. I cut a window, and then yeah. I wait for everybody to come out on their own. If you pull a baby yeah. from the egg, you risk ripping umbilicus. You risk tearing off the yolk before they fully absorbed it. Uh, something I would recommend to everybody, if it's your first hatching season, is have a box of cornstarch nearby. Because sometimes babies see all their brothers and sisters running out of the eggs, and they do as well. And they'll rip their own umbilical cord, and uh, you know, they'll have a little bit of it stuck onto their bellies. Uh, don't be don't be too freaked out because sometimes that bleeds and there's a little bit of blood. So you just kind of take the cornstarch in your hand and you kind of like smash it like into the uh, baby's umbilical cord. You kind of like just pack it in there, and that'll stop any kind of bleeding. It's almost like clotting powder. And it's perfectly natural, perfectly safe. And I've had some babies who have ripped theirs before, who if you were to come down and see them, they would be like powdered white from like their neck down because they were like squirming around and freaking out and there was blood and all this other stuff. So cornstarch is definitely good for little babies just to pack it in there and they're usually fine. I sex the babies right out of the egg, separate them with moist paper towels. And then there you go. Yeah, it's basically uh basically follow the same thing. I haven't had the uh issue with the, where I had to use cornstarch. I did have an issue where um I had uh an animal shoot out of the egg too early and it died. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. because the uh the you could tell the underbelly was uh indented. Basically there was yeah. there was nothing there. So um one of the things that, uh, you know, because I get so excited looking to see what's pipping and what's not, um, sometimes uh, Rob Stone taught me this trick is you just take a, you know, a, a kind of a damp paper towel and just kind of throw it over top of the eggs and mm-hmm. it'll kind of keep them from from wanting to get out and, and shoot out. Um, <clears throat> but uh, other than that, yeah, I just wait till they all come out of the egg soon as I see them all out of the egg, I pull it out of the incubator. Um, I basically separate uh, males and females, uh, you know, sexing them out of the egg, uh, put males in one tub, females in another, uh, damn mm-hmm. paper towel, same type of thing. Uh, as soon as they go through their first shed, that's when I separate them out, uh, resex again, uh, and then... Uh, uh, usually after that, I offer a food. Um, one of the things uh, as far as getting babies to go, uh, for a while, uh, I've tried this frozen salt out of the gate, and I found that uh, some take it just fine. Um, I think maybe, I don't know if maternal incubation has anything to do with it, but the babies come out a little bit heavier and seem to feed a little quicker. Uh, 
again, I, I don't have enough clutches under my belt to say that that's for sure. It's just been an observation of mine. Uh, you're looking mm-hmm. at a baby carp. It's maybe like 22, uh, 22 to 25 grams, depending on the, the subspecies or whatever. But, uh, you know, with the IJs, you're looking at maybe 29 grams that were maternally incubated. So a little bit bigger um, size-wise. Uh, so I've been feeding live from the gate because yeah. I found with with for me just for me personally uh, there's mm-hmm. this myth that carpets once they're stuck on a prey that they, that you can't get them off of that I have not found that to be the no case. no no um, not at all I don't know if it's because of the way that I feed that could be something to do with it you know because feeding seasonally, you know, you're not going to be as picky. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. But I have not experienced that, you know, switching from mice to rats. I mean, basically, I'm starting with hoppers. Um, I've started with fuzzies uh, as far as live, just because I've, you know, if I'm feeding frozen salt from the gate, I'm going hoppers. When I was feeding right. uh Live, I, I kind of was like kind of nervous about putting a hopper in with a baby snake. Um, but uh, like I said at the beginning, there, Julia said that uh, getting the albinos to go. Uh, basically, a, a, a hopper is going to be more jumpy, more active, and uh, apparently that's what gets them to respond, uh, to kick that food response in. Um they're nowhere near as difficult as, say, blackheads or anteresia or even chondros, for that matter. I think carpets are relatively simple to uh, to get going. And I've had some some problems where, uh, like the like I said, the albino stuff was was a little picky as far as getting them going. Once they're going, they're they're rock solid. So I've done the. <clears throat> force feeding uh, the pink head. I've, I've put the animal in the bag, scented it with, uh, you know, left it overnight. I did the uh, trick of uh, where you uh, scent it with chick down. You know, mm-hmm. that seems to uh, to work. Um, but, uh, you know, that's basically it. And, you know, once, once they get going, pretty much they're on. <laughs> you know, it's just some of them can be uh, a little tricky to uh, to get going. Yeah. So. I, I, again, live is... I had an entire clutch of bread live, needed live, a couple live feedings, and then you swap them right over to the frozen thawed. And yeah, no like what you said about... Yeah, no worries at all. And what you said about them getting stuck on stuff, it's... Uh, where you start running into the problems is, is if you have a carpet that's been eating mice, and he's, like, about to turn, like, two or three years old, and you start trying to give it rats, then I think you start having problems. But a baby carpet python or even a juvie carpet python, it doesn't give two rats asses what you're sticking in front of its face. It's going to eat it. So, you know, I say get them started on whatever and then try to get them onto whatever it is you want them to get them onto before they turn one, and I don't think you're going to have any problems. Yeah, I basically approach it. I do hoppers, mouse, uh, you know, like an adult mouse. And then I switch over to a small rat. Mm -hmm. And that's 
that's it. There. Yep. Once they're on rats, nothing else. <laughs> I have Very used uh, I have used African sulfurs as sort of that in between. Um, yeah. I find that uh, you know um, they're a little bit bigger than a mouse, a little bit smaller mm-hmm. than a small rat, and uh, it being an adult animal. Um, I think that uh, maybe healthier, um, you know, more yeah, calcium, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's so, funny. I was talking to, I was listening to somebody at Hamburg who was like, hey, you know, I feed my baby things, this and this. I feed them pinkies, and, you know, they got calcium in it because of the bones. And it's like, no, a pinky is pretty <laughs> much a water balloon. So there's nothing yeah. in it. So if you can get your baby's started on anything larger than a fuzzy, do it. Because then you got the added calcium of the bones. You got this, that, the other thing, the hair. All that stuff kind of helps for baby carpet develop. If it's on, if you have to have a baby carpet, start on pinkies. Because sometimes you get the ones that don't want anything but the smallest prey item possible if they're a little freaked out or scared. Get them on to something larger as soon as you can because you're going to start noticing the pull away from the siblings that start on hoppers versus the ones that start on pinkies, it, it happens quick. Like those ones yeah. that started on hoppers are going to grow way faster than those ones on pinkies. So yeah, yeah, get them off the water balloons as soon as possible. I don't, think I, <laughs> yeah. I don't even think I, I don't even think I buy pinkies anymore. I think I just go like I think the lowest I buy is fuzzies. So yeah, that's geez. the lowest that I, I I've only did. I've done a couple pinkies simply because I did uh, uh, assist feeding. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that was Yeah. But, we'll uh, get into whole, like, yogurt and crap. <laughs> All that fun <laughs> stuff with the baby. Yeah. God. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much beginning to end. Um, you know, uh, it, like I said, they're not that difficult um, to breed. Um, some of the uh, subspecies can be a little bit trickier for the most part. Mm-hmm. They're pretty straight ahead, uh, typical python breeding stuff. Uh, main thing is, is is just watch the cues of what your animals are telling you and follow that, and, uh, you know, uh, you will be successful. Uh, I would recommend taking notes um, just because I, I found that taking notes helps you dial in what has worked and what hasn't worked. Um, right. Get yourself a notebook. Uh, you could use a diary app on your phone. Uh, I've done both. Um, I find the diary app on the phone is easier because you can just talk into it, you know, and you don't have to write anything down. Right. And or, it just kind of puts it day by day. Or a calendar. You can write it down on your brand new Morelia Python radio calendar. Ah! <laughs> Good segue. Good segue. Good segue, Owen. Yeah. <laughs> the contest is going on right now for the Morelia Python Radio calendar contest, which we've got some of awesome pictures. Have you seen um, some of the pictures? They're gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to start going through and filing them this, to make sure that uh, we got, uh, you know, some for each category. Oh. Um, well, Sorry to the uh, Australians uh, over on the West Coast, but uh, we didn't do Imbricata simply because in the past years, 
we didn't really have anybody that no one knew that had imbricata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we 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 you know, uh, but 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 uh, by all means, if you have a picture of Morelia imbricata, I would put it into the Morelia etc. category, and we will uh, gladly. Did you, see, uh, did you see some of the yeah. stuff that's been popping up in the etc. I mean, it's like we're talking yeah. whitelists, rings, timors, a tarantula. Some random geckos, <laughs> black-eyed yeah. tree frogs. Uh, Scott Borden put a sea turtle in, and I'm like, Scott, it has to be your own animal. So unless you want to confess now to committing a horrendous <laughs> felony, um, yeah. I'm going to have to delete this. So it's it, yeah. it was it, but some of the pictures are awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be hard this year, I think. Yeah. So what we did is there's a thread over on Morelia Python Radio Facebook group page. I couldn't mm-hmm. do it on the actual Facebook page, so we had to yeah. do it in a group. Um, so I made uh, – it's at the top of the page. It's the pin post. And yeah. uh, just go on to that pin post, submit your picture, make sure you put down what category it is for, um, and uh, – a little bit of information about the animal. Uh, if you have some kind of alias um, or some kind of goofy name or something for Facebook, make sure that you put your name so we can get in contact with you. Let us uh, know you who you win. are, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Or otherwise, we're not going to be able to get you the calendar if you're the winner. Um, so <laughs> we got, what, two weeks left? Um, yeah. We're gonna. It's gonna run until November seventh, and right. and then at November seventh, um, it's gonna close, and we will judge and have it together by November tenth uh, on that yep. following. And then we'll do episode. that show. Yeah, we'll do that episode where we re- where we will announce the winners, and then you guys will be able yeah. to. The winners will get the calendars for those of you who did not win. Or for those of you who didn't enter but just want a really cool calendar, that is when they will be put on for sale. So that's when you can go grab those. And uh, like I said, I have mine hangs in my snake room. I put all my show dates, all the snake observations that I do. It's all over there. So um, I would definitely get it. And actually, it's really cool. I started taking the old ones, ripping them apart, and throwing them up and pasting all the pictures of all the Morelli on the side of my incubator. So it's... <laughs> It's something really cool that I'm like, eh, whatever. I'm not letting really cool pictures go to waste. So uh, go grab it. It, It's a fun calendar. um, And, you know, maybe staring at a chondro for an entire month will make you think about getting one. So uh, I know that's what it did for me several times. So it's cool. (laughs) And I think Dave D is going to join us for that show as well because he won Morelia of the Year. That's the other thing. Is you guys, yeah. If you win Morelia of the Year, you get to come on the show next year and judge the calendar competition with us uh, for the 2017 year. So that yeah. is if we're still doing this in 2017. I don't know. Might <laughs> shut it down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It'll shut it down. Shut um, it down. Close it up. But- well, we'll at least go until the calendar's. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta, of course. Well, too late now. So yes, yeah, so. so if you're interested in that, uh, by all means, uh, head over there. 
Don't forget about the uh, Southern Fest. So it would be the Southeast Carpet Fest is November 7th down in mm-hmm. Florida. Uh, they have, I think their booster might be over, but it's not. They might have one day left. Uh, oh, man. They're doing a uh, booster uh, for a cool T-shirt. Um, you know, head over. I think uh, they're basically doing the same thing that we were doing with the uh, Morelia Python Radio. Uh, you know, it goes to U.S. Art donations, et cetera, and you get a cool shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, head on down. I think they have a Facebook group page. Uh, you can go over there for more information about uh, where it's at and the dates and whatnot. But uh, if you're going to be down there on the uh, uh, in the southern part of the U.S., or if you are somewhere close to there and you're thinking about going, I would. Uh, Say it's a good idea. I think we've yeah. had this speech enough about going and mingling with uh, your fellow Morelia or reptile folk uh, and meet new you people. You won't regret it. And, no, absolutely not. So that's November 7th. So be sure to check that out. Uh, let's see. Let's wrap this up. Next week's guest is, like I said, Scott Eber. He is coming on, and we're going to be talking about herping in Australia. So uh, this guy has, as you guys have seen tonight on the Morelia Facebook page uh, chat, it's just basically the Morelia Python radio chat, um, he's posted up tons of pictures. uh, I think at the beginning of the show he kind of took me off guard with uh, pictures of perennies. Um, (laughs) So, uh, God, yeah, right. It's kind of cool stuff. Uh, I've seen a lot of the uh, the stuff that uh, he's found in the wild, which is wild, and, uh, you know, some really cool stuff. So we're looking forward to talk to him about just Herford in Australia. We'll gear us up for our 2016 Australia, what would it be, Morelia Python Radio uh, Aus- Abroad. Australia yeah, I mean, World yeah. Tour or whatever. <laughs> um, oh, can we please have T-shirts made? <laughs> With just a single date <laughs> on the back, and that's it. Yeah, the world first uh, one date. Yeah. <laughs> one of the yeah, one of the cool things is uh, Scales and Tails magazine Australia. Yeah. Um, uh, I've I've bought their e magazines, and yeah. I can't for the life of me figure out why it's taken me so long to buy the actual hard copy. <laughs> I subscribed. I'm now a subscriber, uh, but Good I job. do have the uh, a lot of the e mags. Anyway, uh, they're going to be doing a contest uh, on next week's show with uh, with Scott. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll release well, those right, details then. as we get closer, but uh, yeah. it'll be uh, will be pretty cool. We would love to get uh, a closer relationship with those guys, and you know maybe come down and hang out at one of the reptile expos. Want to go to one of the shows? Uh, yeah, Cause yeah, I Eric think that would be are- cool. Eric and I are glutton for punishments. We want to go to a show where we see everything we want but cannot buy it. So <laughs> Yeah. It's almost yeah. as bad as being a male in a tub cruising and can't get cruising around where you know yeah. oh. <laughs> Like I wanna see you at the Imbricata table where it's like, you know we can't buy any of these, right? What? We can't. Uh, no none of these no. So So yeah, so that should be cool. 
Uh, and then the week after that, we have uh, Terrell coming back, but uh, this one is a Blood Python uh, episode. Bloods and Short Tales, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, that. And um, I think that's... Uh, I think that's it, and then it would be the uh, calendar contest after that, and you know some a couple other cool things lined up before we do our holiday show called Holy Crap! It's almost year that time. Yeah. Yes. Weird. So check out our website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can send them to info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can follow us on Facebook uh, at Morelia Python Radio and on Twitter at Morelia Python. Uh, if you, uh, let's see, what else do we got? Uh, yeah, that's it. If, uh, if you want to hear the show, iTunes to uh, to get it, uh, or you can go to Blog Talk. It's also on our website uh, or whatever podcast app that is of your liking. Uh, just put in Morelia Python's radio and it will come up. Um, if you're interested, uh, as far as myself, you can check out my website, ebmorelia.com. If you're interested in anything that I have going on, uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at ebmorelia. Uh, if you want to get on a list or see what's available or just have a question, you can send me an email at eric at ebmorelia. And that is all I have. Cool. Uh, well, I got it. You can go to rogue-reptiles.com, check out all the stuff we got going on there. I will be taking updated photos of the babies we have left, which is not a lot of babies. So if you've been on the fence about something, uh, let me know. I am I'm down to one brittle. I'm, out, I'm, I'm done, almost out of brittles. I have one brittle left. So if you wanted one of our brittle boys and we're waiting, you messed up. I <laughs> <laughs> buy him now. He's the last the last one I got. Um, <laughs> other than that, uh, just uh, hang on there. And you can also go and find Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com. Look us up there. We'll have updated pictures and for sale ads up there as well. I would start trying to get going right now because I'm going to black out shipping soon. And once the weather starts to remain, starts getting cold and staying cold, uh, we will not be shipping out. Um, but we will have shows that you can meet us at. I think the next one we will be at vending is the December 6th Hamburg Reptile Show. Uh, but I will, of course, be attending a few others here and there, Habit or Grace and White Plains as they come up. It depends on what we're doing. Uh, I'll let you guys know as we get closer to that. Uh, other than that, um, look for the update of our full breeding list when I decide to release it. Uh, until then, wait. Um, so that's what I got. Um, that's what we got. So what we'll say is thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you all next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I 
afraid it's a reptile report. The reptile report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.